Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm, I'm James Cottingham. I'm the Managing Director of DK Engineering. The Driven Chat Podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Hello there, and welcome to this week's Driven Chat podcast. My name is John Markar, and sat beside me, as he is so frequently now, almost every single week. It's Miles Lacey. Hey. I'm here again. Hooray. Hooray. We're all here. We're all here. We're all here, which is very good. And where are we? We are, let me set the scene, in a beautiful, what do we call this, clubhouse room? Club room? The green room. The green room. Really? I, think, I, think, green. I think that's because it's green. Yeah. 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 It's a good shade of green as well. Not, not quite as swampy enough for my liking, James, but <laughs> it's a nice shade of green. And it's actually one of the best things that, to come out of COVID for us. Oh, really? So during COVID, you know, we were open because we're a garage. And uh, everyone wanted to come and see us still at any opportunity, but we didn't want to sit in our offices with people. And it was that weird sort of, do we have distance or not? Um, And this was an engine shop beforehand. My father was always, you know, adamant that the engine shop needed to be next to the showroom so people can really see that we're a real engineering business, which (laughs) I think just going to the workshop, you can see that. So we, uh, yeah, we we emptied it out and turned it into this sort of clubhousey type room. So we've got sofas, drinks, simulator, tables a lot of meetings in here yeah a lot of good meetings perfect love it and this green room is as you might have guessed there from both the introduction and from the title of this week's episode we're at dk engineering and i mean usually a typical scenario for us so miles and i turning up for a podcast like this quite typically we'd rock up at say 10 o'clock in the morning by 10 30 we're sat around a table 
having a conversation. We did rock up this morning at, I think, 10 o'clock. The time now that we're actually starting recording this, it's just coming up to one o'clock in the afternoon. Yes, James has been awfully uh, generous with his time, and I feel like we've had a very, um, uh, you know, warts and all tour of of DK, and it turns Mm. out it's quite a large thing that they've got going on here. (laughs) (laughs) I really struggle to sort of portray that to the outside world. And uh, so many people come and say, you know, I think you get to like, you know, there are three sets of premises and you get midway through premises two. I think you started saying actually it was like Pandora's box or mm. Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, Alice yeah. in Wonderland. Keep opening doors. But it's always the same. People go, oh, my God. And there's more. And you sort of try and explain that we've only seen probably 20 percent of the cars that we're going to see today mm. by that point because we haven't been storage. Um, so I really wanted you guys to have a look around the whole of DK and see what it's all about. So I hope you enjoyed it. It's been wonderful. Yeah, so we started our tour here at The Farm, which I think is, it's a place if you've been very lucky, if you've been invited to DK, perhaps if you've seen a car for sale, you might have been to the barn or certainly seen cars photographed here, sorry, barn at The Farm, I should say. Um, Then James took us down the road to... uh, another farm which is incredible with even more cars on display there i have made a strategic list of cars that i've spotted and overheard some little snippets of stories that we'll pick up on as we've been going around but then we went over to the storage facility which is just mind-blowing we had a great game of guess the car under the covers which i think i did fairly well at, if i do say so myself well, i think what you did was show your true nerd that that's your true nerd came out there because i'm fine with that in fact actually i should say there was a couple of cars that james pipped you on um so you've let yourself down really john what the, the the company that james owns <laughs> i do see the bills <laughs> yeah. he sees the bills but also you know there are a great many cars here so to yes. remember them all is quite a skill yeah absolutely absolutely so let's give a run through then in that case now that we've had the big tour and we'll pick up on some of the cars that we've spotted perhaps a really difficult one to answer in a short sentence, but if somebody came in and you know, never heard of the company before, they've met you, let's say, at a hotel in Vegas, why not? And said, so James, what do you do and, and, and what does your business do? How do you summarise that? Uh, funny you should say that because post-university, when I catch up with people and see them for the first time in three years and they say, what do you do? I'd really struggle with that question. Uh-huh. And uh, am I a car salesman? Not really. Uh, am I you know, part of a business that's a garage not really, you know, so it's always been a difficult one to explain. But I think today um, we've got a bit of a catch line for the business. And it is essentially, we are Ferrari specialists, founded in 1977. It was originally a restoration business that has uh, restored some of the most uh, important Ferraris uh, in the world for some of the biggest collectors over the years. Um, We've name dropped a few guys already, um, but I'll do that again. So Ralph Lauren, Mm. uh, Chris Evans... Lord Bamford, people like that over the years. You know, those are just three of our our sort of well-known clients um, from the past. And and today we've morphed into this business which provides the complete service. So that is our catchphrase today, the complete service. And what that means is we really try and be a one-stop shop because values have become so high. Uh, The the automotive industry in our sector is, you know, multi-billion dollar industry now. Um, It's all about quality of service, value, and making it easy for the owner to, ha- to enjoy the cars and have a great experience. You know, this, this is a business my parents founded based on a hobby. They were car collectors originally with normal day jobs who decided, actually, let's go set this business up and specialize in Ferrari. They were actually Jaguar guys, really, originally, but let's specialize in Ferrari. It's an exciting brand. There's huge variety. My father was, a re- or is, a really technically-minded um, gentleman, uh, an engineer at heart, 
And uh, he loved the variety of Ferrari. You know, in the 50s, there were six-cylinder cars, V12 cars, four-cylinders, coupes, steel bodies, aluminium bodies, many different coach builds, et cetera, et cetera. So there was, you know, a really good starting point there. But going back to complete service, so today we have a sales business that is the core of the business. You know, big turnover, big cars sold, small cars sold as well. So if you want us to sell your 355, if you're an existing client, we'll happily assist. Um, but if you want us to help you find an Alpha 8C, a pre-war Alpha 8C that is, or a McLaren F1, or even a 250 GTO, or something as, as you know blue chip as that, we can assist. And when it comes to storage, service, restoration, maintenance, even race preparation, but not as much these days because people don't race Ferraris as much, we are here to help and assist. And even when it comes down to insurance recommendations, we've sort of whittled down all these different things that you need to know. Um, Another thing might be, who do you use to ship your cars across the world? We'll say, we'll handle that for you. Mm. And a really good example of that is Porsche 959, a very good client of ours from Hong Kong, has a friend who has a car in Japan. He's really been struggling with it. And he said, look, you just need to deal with James. He will give you the complete service start to finish and he'll look after you. And that car is now here in the UK at Porsche GB. We're overseeing it being fixed because it's got the standard suspension issue. And eventually we'll ship that car back to, to Japan. We'll charge him a modest fee for the service, but he's going to have had to have not dealt with the guys in between at all in terms of shipping, in terms of Porsche GB, in terms of you know the, the details, getting it photographed whilst it's being serviced, making sure that everything's done properly. We'll handle all of that for him. Mm. So it comes back to this complete service. We really want to try and look after a client and just say, leave it to us. We'll do it. We'll do as much as we can in-house. But where it uh, doesn't pay for us to do it in-house, we won't do it in-house. And that will always be based on quality and cost, you know, trim, metalwork, paint. We don't do that in-house because there are horses for courses. There are different cars, different trim shops, different body shops that you know, match each other well. Um, but we'll make sure that you know the quality and the cost and the, the time frame is the right balance. Love it. It's a great thing, to, the idea of having a, a car or a collection of cars, perhaps in different corners of the world in comparison to where you live or where you might be based, the idea that you can just phone a number. I've always liked this idea, phone a number or send an email saying, I need this car to go from here to here via here and ideally a new set of tyres on the service please and then not have to think anything more about it until the car comes back or meets them at that destination I just think that's maybe the magic DK should have their own version of like the bat symbol that just gets flashed in the air (laughs) we need James's services now I think that is my mobile phone number (laughs) there is a very bright red Bakelite telephone that I can see over in the corner there which could resemble that service just needs that red flashing light doesn't it yeah um, that's a great summary of the business and we'll dive I'm sure through this conversation very naturally into the different aspects of what the business does and how it does it and why it's so good and, and has the reputation that it has but one of the fun questions that I often like to start with is a, a very personal question which uh, explores the the early origins of how you've got to where you are and perhaps why you've got to where you are which is do you have a core memory as far back as you can remember perhaps as a small child or a very young adult that might have been the moment that switched on the light bulb to get you to where you are now i think there are three so one is being a really really young uh my parents had a really beautiful 166 barchetta which is that very early Barchetta is Italian for boat, open Ferrari, the same, very much the same as the first Ferrari that won Le Mans 49, which incidentally we were lucky enough to look after the, for the last four years on behalf of the American client mm-hmm. here at DK, um, which was a real sort of goosebump moment when that car arrived and a really sad day when it left in January this year. Um, but my parents had this wonderful car. 
It was blue, French blue, sort of Bugatti French blue. It ran at Le Mans period. Same color as my Audi, actually. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I remember being in the footwell of that car with my parents, going to a Ferrari Owners Club event with this car that my father had restored, which everyone was just, you know, wowed by because his, especially at that time, so this would have been mid to late 80s, his quality of restoration was so much better than anyone else's at the time. I think that's why we managed to get lots of clients from the States in the late 80s, early 90s. The US are very good at restoring cars now, but they weren't so good in the 80s and 90s. And the same for the Italians, you know, they just, they weren't, they didn't have the reputation, they didn't have the attention to detail. And that car was fabulous. And I remember thinking, this is really special. This is really important. And that particular car, you know, I think it's because of various photographs over the years, but I was obviously around it a lot. There's a photo of me and our, at our house before the one of the farms we've been to today so it would have been about 87 mm -hmm. and there's a picture of you know it jacked up wheel off and i've got i'm sitting on the wheel with a hammer that's ingrained in my memory and a photograph taken for a magazine article where dad was going up and down the drive at the farm we've just been to which is sort of a half a mile long straight drive and they were taking photos and i came out to see what was going on i was always interested in the cars and so the, and so i stopped him and said as a five-year-old or a four-year-old you know what are you doing dad and um, and there's this great photo taken from a distance of me sort of with my hands on my hips <laughs> asking my dad what he's up to, you know, and sort of you know, wondering why he's going up and down the drive. So that car, that, those memories of that car are ingrained. Second one is going, I, I guess this was probably more like 95, 96. So I was 11 or 12 going to, and again, a Ferrari's, Ferrari Owners Club meet. And at that time, we were looking after, I think, four of the 15 factory competition Daytonas. Mm -hmm. We'd restored all of them around about the same time. And we came, and we were on the M25. We were just coming home, coming off at Junction 18. There's a really great long slip road. And Dad just sort of dropped it down to third. And we were you know, to the rev limit, well, not the rev limiter, but top of the rev range yeah. in every gear. And I thought, my God, this, <laughs> this is heaven. I've got to have one of these one, one day. And yeah. Fast forward to 2014, Dad and I actually managed to buy one of the Factory 15, which we saw earlier. We didn't talk about it, but the yellow one. Um, and I and I and that that car, you know, I've done a great rally with Dad in in Italy with it. Did the same with my wife to be before we got married as a make or break rally, which we survived <laughs> and we got married. Um, so yeah, th those two. And then the final memories is you know I went to boarding school at 13 until 18, and the first thing I would do when I got home was go into those barns, go into the drawer in the kitchen, pull the key out and go into those barns to see what was new. Mm. Sit in the race cars and like do imaginary laps of Silverstone or Spa and think one day, because at that time, you know, from in 1997, we had F1 racing on the PlayStation. So I yeah, knew all yeah. the circuits, yeah. Yeah, yeah. even Monaco. And, um, and it was, it was, I was like, yeah, I'm going to race these cars. I'm going to have a go at this. This is this is it. So that would be you know the best thing about getting at home. Not see the pets. Not see mum. <laughs> straight to the garage. Straight to the, straight That's outside. It. How are you, darling? Get out of my way. I want to see <laughs> the cars. What's new? <laughs> yeah. So I've always had this underlying passion for these cars and this business. Mm. You know, and I've always been so proud of what my parents did. Um, and I, you know, later on in my career, it's really helped me because you know we we bagged some big clients who were new to the to the game who would be researching these Ferraris and just say, this name keeps coming up, DK yeah. or Cottingham. I've just got to talk to these guys. And more than one client said that to me in the past where the reason they came to us in the first place is because it was just like, you'd see that Ferrari and 250 and Cottingham or DK or you know whatever the sports race was, it's sure. just always there. So yeah. it seemed like a natural path. But I did pretend that I wouldn't 
come into the business. And we talked yeah. about mechanical engineering. I thought, yeah, I'll go work for ProDrive or do something else maybe for a bit. And then, I, then after engineering, I was like, it's pretty boring. So I'll go do sales. I'll go work for an auction house. I had an interview with Max Gerardo. And mm. He was like, yeah, you can come work for us, but you've got to go and work in, uh, in Canada which was quite clever by him. It was like, yeah, you can come work for us, but here's an opportunity that you'll never do. Yeah. Um, so I didn't do that. And then, yeah, I've been in the business since I left uni in 2007. Project managed the restoration of this farm that we're at as a, as a sort of year after uni before I started in the business. And then it was a credit crunch. So it was like pretty tricky times. Mm. And I just spent a lot of the family's money on this farm. That's, yeah. So I felt a bit guilty. Sure. Um, so it was sort of dig in and get on. And the rest is history, really. And each year... You know, you're always learning. You're always remembering. Um, but that, those are the, the love it. I've it, gone a bit a, a bit off piece there, but no, that's no, no, kind of all. the story of how, why I thought I wanted to get in, involved in the business. You know, it's obviously an easy thing to get involved in the family business, but it wasn't. It wasn't my. It was my underlying passion, but it wasn't my intention. Mm. But here I am. Well, I think so. You mentioned there in the first memory story about a particular car owned by a particular influential person. Um, and I'm, I'll, I'll let you take lead on whether you want to disclose who the person is because you told us the story earlier, which I thought was fantastic. But ultimately, it is this one person, this one individual that had a car that, or, or allowed an opportunity yeah. uh, in order to make all this happen. Yeah, so the 80s were great. I mean, the, the 70s and 80s were great for the business. Mum and Dad always say, you know, it was, they were just going to America. They were buying these, in the main, 50 sports Ferraris that were in barns that had stopped racing 20 years before with broken engines usually and were complicated restorations no one wanted to take on buying them for not very much mm. spending two years totally restoring them and let's say spending a hundred thousand on them and then suddenly because of the rise in values they were worth millions mm -hmm. yeah. so these projects were fantastic they could buy these cars and really grow their own collection which is what they did but dad realized he had a space problem <laughs> he needed somewhere to put these cars and in 1987 there was in the financial times this farm, there was just a, an article on this farm that was for sale that was close to the M25, close to Heathrow, happened to be four miles from where we lived at the time. And he was like, I've got to buy that because look at how many barns there are and how many cars I could put in there. And um, it was, I think the price, the values were something like, it was 1.8 million pounds for the farm. He had a Jaguar XKSS, an original car, um, which one of his high profile clients from America, real fashion, fashion guy, <laughs> uh, wanted to buy but values at the time were let's say 1.5 mm -hmm. so eventually when he next came to see dad dad gave in and said look i've got an opportunity you can buy it but it's this much which was more than it was worth really but it was a really special car because it was very original um because i want to buy this farm and it's a bit more complicated than that but ultimately <laughs> we bought we bought the farm and the farm's been re you know, really good for us and that's not the farm that the, the business is based at, but the other farm where all the showrooms are which is only a mile from the office because we didn't buy this farm where the office is until 2007 right. or six. Uh, seven. So, yeah, yeah seven. just on the cusp of financial yeah. difficulties. Yeah, it <laughs> seemed like a great idea at the time. It was a great <laughs> idea, but yeah. it did create some problems initially. Um, and, and that, uh, yeah, the, you know, that farm, the other farm, has been so good to our business because we had all these great buildings that we restored over the years and had the cars in, showrooms and our own cars and a bit of storage initially until we outgrew that. And... Um, yeah, that was a real a real turning point. But we always, you always gauged the value. You, know, you can't help it as a guardian. Mm. Gauged the value of the farm versus the XKSS. And it seemed great until about 2000 and 
13 or 12 and then suddenly an XKSS was 10 million quid and it was like oh we should never have sold that car <laughs> you know, 15 years ago but um uh, no sorry 20 25 years ago but actually you know you don't think of it no, like that no, it's, it's been so useful and uh, you, you know you see today so many sort of other businesses in our in our industry move to farms because they mm. do lend themselves really well to repurposing the buildings especially if you're lucky enough to buy a beautiful farm like this that has all these lovely brick built buildings to mm. You know, turn them into showrooms and things like that. And I love it when Americans come because they're like, "Oh my God, did you build this from scratch?" Like, no. no, no, it's been <laughs> here for eight hundred yeah. years yeah. or something. There's no disrespect to the Americans, but yeah. they, they do we're, always we're a bit ask older that. Older than you, yeah. They do yeah. always ask that question. And I'm like, "Don't you think I would have built a bigger showroom?" <laughs> yeah. I think that's you know that you were. Uh, we felt very privileged to have a, a good look around and get an idea of what um, you know what DK is as a whole. Um, but I think what probably the most remarkable thing for me was your attention to detail on not ob- obviously, first and foremost, it's the cars and the projects that are happening, but everything else, you know, you're looking around and you're spotting things that you're, they're not to your standard. And, you know, there's an expectation when people come here and they see that and then it's reflected in the work that you do and everything else. It's like, you know, this is the brand and the ethos of what DK does. And it's everything down to even where the plugs are on the ground for the charges and things like that. And I just found that really fascinating because it's not something you see every day. Yeah, I think, I mean, Henry Pierman, Eagle types he told me a long time ago when I was young, when he was showing me around his place, everywhere's a showroom. Mm-hmm. And it's true. You know, everywhere is a showroom. And it is a reflection of what you do. And coming back to this farm, you know, when we restored it, we, we said at the time, this is our biggest restoration yet, because it was really supposed to be a reflection of how we like to do things. Yeah. Which is properly, not, not cut corners. And we looked at one of those cars that we hadn't started a restoration of, and it's, as a result, it's a 90% DK restoration, because it's not fully to our standard. But the premises are the same, and I think the guys, the guys in the business must hate it when they hear that I'm doing a tour. Because, you know, there's like six text messages that go out to the various WhatsApp groups yeah. of pictures. And like, what is this? And why, why is there an oil stain here? And why has this car not got a cover on it? And, you know, yeah. uh, but you have to be like that because yeah. that is how we run our business. And that's, you know, all of these cars here, well, all the cars here that aren't, aren't ours. So 95% of the cars that you see today aren't ours. You know, we are looking after someone's pride and joy, their baby, something that they don't necessarily need to own but they have treated themselves because they've done well and they've said, I'm going to have this. And so you have to treat it like, you know, it's, it's, the, it's your own. Yeah. And for me, that is, you know, it, everything's got to be clean, tidy, no you know, mud in the footwells and things like that. And, you know, I try to avoid it as much as possible, but it just shocks me when cars come back from other specialists that, you know, my cars come back with, dirty footwells and sure. stuff in the front and you know bits not fitted all that kind of stuff yeah and, yeah. and oh they've obviously the, they've let the battery go flat so they've accessed the battery but not refitted the panel that's a classic one that I just mm. don't get because you know you're leaving the footprints yeah. uh, <laughs> you know the breadcrumbs but the, I, I try and drum that into the team as much as possible you know sometimes sound like a bit of a broken record the premises can't be perfect the whole time but yeah. You know, you just try not to cut corners and do everything to the highest standard. And that's a reflection of the way we do all of our business, whether it's restorations, whether it's the research that goes into buying a car, the pre-delivery inspections. You know, that's really important. Our workshop business is a difficult business to run these days. Um, very difficult to make margin out of it. But 
it is really important that every car we sell, where possible, goes into that workshop for a full PDI. And sometimes we'll send it elsewhere for a big service and then put it through our workshop because it's got to meet our checklist mm. and our level of quality. I think, yeah, I, I, that was... Um we were looking at we were looking at particular cars. We were walking around, and uh, it was a car that had done had had a, a reasonable restoration, not by you guys, admittedly. And then, I think the story goes that the the client said, "Right, no, this isn't really working for me. Let's send it to DK." And so I asked you the question, "What would you have done differently?" And straight away, you were like, "How long have you got?" Mm. You know, because your eye and the business's eye, what DK's view on is, what DK's view on a restoration is. And the quality of that restoration, what maybe someone else would expect of a usual tasteful restoration, is very, very different. Um, even down to you know, headlight fitment and wings and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it, we saw that as we went round. There was nothing really a hair out of place on these cars. I actually had a really refreshing situation recently where there is a dealer out there who's, I wouldn't say a competitor, but does what we do. And uh, has got quite big into restoring cars publicly, but doesn't have a workshop, gets it done elsewhere right. in Europe, makes a big deal of it. And I ended up taking one of the cars that he'd had restored for a client in part exchange recently. And we'd had a com- he and I get on very well and we'd have a frank conversation. He's like, I don't understand why your restorations cost so much. I've restored this car for this much. How much would it cost you? And I was like, well, probably about 40,000 more than that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's worth it. And he was like, oh, you know, that's why I use who I use because I think it's too much. But when the car arrived, you know, a few months later, just as a coincidence, I looked at it and thought, really nice, but, you know, and there were things that I would do differently, I would improve on. And I thought about how much it would cost to put those things right. It was 40 grand. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and, easy, and even then, I think our restorations, you could definitely make them even better. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, there, there is a level where we have to say stop. But there are, you know, I think it's really important today that, we restore cars to a a quality that's that's you know better than it was 10 years ago and um it really is important to have someone managing that restoration for you who is going to keep eyes on it at every point of the way that also understands the process so difference between taking notes and taking photographs of restoration during the way and actually understanding what happens next mm. and if we don't trial fit that part now we might have a problem down the line and if the car comes back from trim and that doesn't fit properly well we need to deal with that now because it's going to be a problem when it's finished. Yeah. All these little things, I guess only experience can... Uh, can you're can absolutely you. right. I mean, a, a perfect point on that is one of the first cars that we looked at after we arrived here and you took us on this fabulous tour. We walked through the doors from your reception into a showroom with three cars. The first car we see there, Ferrari F50, looking pristine. And it was a pre-prototype? Pre-production, pre-production. prototype, yeah. Uh, and the, one of the first things I noticed inside the car, which I'd never seen before was the interior light, which may sound like a strange thing for you, dear listener, but the interior light in a Ferrari F50, in case you haven't seen one, is essentially a torch which can be removed from the car. It has a little um, electronic like a charge, connection A charging point. dock. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, charging dock on the back of it, so that when you get into the car, you have an interior light that essentially is shining a little torch towards your centre console and dashboard, but equally, you can take that out and use it as a torch, if you, just in case you needed to. But you were saying that lots of these have disappeared. 
Yeah, yeah. The, in, with all the F-50s that exist out there, these little torches have disappeared and it's become something quite sought after because, of course, nobody's got them. They've got well, lost, they've got broken. I mean, the values have gone up so much and the F-50 in particular is one of those cars that just came with so much. Yeah. You know, it had a flight case for the other roof and it had luggage and it had boots. I mean, boots. You know, when have Ferrari done that since? <laughs> they had boots and, and champagne flutes and this torch. Yeah. And the torch is flimsy and it goes wrong. So, yeah. like, the, especially on F-50s, the bits have gone missing over the years and now they're worth... Five million dollars. It's like, yeah. is your car complete? You know? does, yeah. Does it have the torch? Does yeah. it have a torch? And so, yeah, the torch is a, is an issue that we've solved. Yeah. By um, we've had to re-engineer them. You can't buy them from Ferrari, so we have made. You know, do I call them replicas? No. Yes, maybe continuations. We've, we have made continuation <laughs> torches for for an F fifty that are pretty much indistinguishable. There's one difference, which. I challenge someone to find. Yeah. Um, and they work. So, you know, if you leave them switched on, they work when the door's closed and wow. open as an interior light. Um, but they were very expensive to, to manufacture. You, some but, would say eye-wateringly expensive. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, we've, we've put our hand up and we've gone, right, let's go and make 10 of these. Yeah. Because it's a question we're asked so often. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, now we, we have these little torches. So if, you're, if, you're, if you are, if you happen to be at a car boot sale in Italy and come across <laughs> an F50 torch... Buy it immediately. Oh, yes. totally. Or an exhaust. <laughs> or an, I mean, we talked about exhaust, the other one, wasn't it? You know, yeah. because over the years, people would buy tubi style full sports exhaust systems mm. for an F50 because the engine is effectively an F1 engine with a V, you know, it's a V12 and they sound amazing yeah. with a full, uh, full sports system. But what happened to the original system? It's probably on the shelf in someone's garage. Yeah. They've sold the car since or even like left at the dealer, forgotten about. And I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like 12 different parts. You've got two back boxes, two cats, two sets of manifolds, link pipes, valves, pipes, all this stuff. There's these bits. And so a complete original F50 exhaust system today is worth £100,000. Oh, come on. A hundred grand. £100,000. Because people are obsessed with Class K. Yeah. So you can't get it certified if it doesn't have the full original exhaust system. Fair enough. Um, and so if you've got a car for sale and then they see sports exhaust, they're like, have you got the original exhaust? And then when you say no, you know you're buggered. Yeah, yeah. Big cross on the, on yeah. the sheet. It's not something I'm I not would have considered. Yeah. It sounds better. The, uh, the, the, the classic A, the, um, this requirement that's become almost, I want to say a trend in a way, you know, to buy the car and have it absolutely perfect as to how it would have come out of the factory. We had an, an interesting moment on our tour and do correct me if I got this wrong. Was it a 250 long wheelbase? The green. Oh, uh, Luso. Luso. 250 the 250 Luso, yeah. GT Luso. Yeah. Beautiful green bodywork. But the car itself is quite far now from how it would have come out of the factory. It's got a different engine, different gearbox, suspension work had been tweaked. But all in a sense to put it all back, just in case buyer comes along and says, oh, yeah, it's great, looks perfect, but it needs to be as it left the factory. How much are you finding that as a regular thing now with? buyers buying cars of that ilk are there still people out there that just don't care just want something cool or are you do you tend to find the majority do want to have everything by the book so over the years we've had some great clients especially lord bamford has always been great for having his own sort of personalized cars mm -hmm. and we've we did a few for him but he did loads of great ferrari based projects especially in the 90s so he had a 400 this wasn't by us but he had a 400 or a 412 chassis shortened body changed so he had one made to look like a short wheelbase, one made to look like a 64 GTO convertible, which of course they never made. Mm. Really cool projects like that. So there have been guys over the years that did it, 
But of late, since 2007, especially Classic A, as we say, has been around, you know, it's so difficult to get that certificate and it's your rubber stamp from Ferrari. It helps you, you know, it helps you validate the value of your car. Um, it, it has been rarer. So when this guy came along, he, he is mad. He's a really nice guy. But he's mad. And I'm sure you met him with one of the SCD things. He called me and said, I've got this car. It's, it's raced a little bit at Goodwood, but it's not fast enough and I want more. And I want you to totally restore it at the same time. And there were, there were sort of a few conversations where I just, you know, humoured him, thinking it'll never happen. And then he was like, right, collect the car. I want to get on with it. And there's a point in time where I have to sort of unplug my head and say, actually, this is what he wants. We shouldn't all pander to what the market wants. He wants to make his Lusso a hot rod Lusso, basically. A yeah. fast road spec Lusso. Super cool. Mm. Like, we've not done anything like this for a number of years. So yeah, now, as, a, as you said, that car has no bumpers, upgraded brakes, brake cooling ducts, five-speed 250 GTO gearbox. The engine's been upgraded to 3.3 litres. It is the original engine. It's just bigger bore size, which we can always go back with, with an engine rebuild. Six carbs, not three. Uh, I don't want to call them strut braces, but they're sort of braces in the engine bay to reinforce it, to make it a little bit uh, stiffer. Um, outside fuel filler. And yeah, as, as you mentioned, no bumpers, but all the irons are behind the metalwork. So if you mm. wanted to fit bumpers later, you can. Yeah. All of this is reversible. It's not, you know, a five grand job, but it's not a hundred grand. Mm. Um, Actually, don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> He's just gone brilliant, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> you probably could do it for a hundred, just. Um, but it's really refreshing to have a client like that that yeah. wanted to do it, and the re- and so the reception has been great because loads of people are like, oh my god, this is amazing. Which why not? Because yeah. you know, as I told you, the most inquired on car I've had this year, Singer DLS. Mm-hmm. You know, the emails are daily, and when it first goes live, you're like, oh. Please shoot me. There's so many, so many inquiries, so many emails. But such is the appetite for resto mods. Mm. Why can't we, you know, do something with the slightly lesser road Ferraris of the 60s? For sure. Update them. It's a shame, isn't it, that so many cars now are being put through the dealer system or the the continued ownership of people, which essentially is, as an onlooker, as somebody that doesn't have the means to be spending 10 plus million on a Ferrari... But I'd, li- I'd like to think that if I had the means, I'd want the Ferrari to be to work for me. I'd want it to be a bit more hot roddy. I'd want to have the spicier engine and the spicier exhaust and slightly upgraded brakes because I might want to take it on a track day because I'm a lunatic. Have you ever driven a Challenge Stradale? Uh, yeah, not I, yet, no. Yeah, I have, yeah. You oh. have. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> I had mixed feelings about it. What let it down? It's a long time ago now. Okay. Hmm? Oh, the gearbox. Oh, the gear. Of yeah. course, the gear. Sorry, I thought that was yeah. a given. Yeah, the gearbox yeah. is awful. Yeah. Gearbox. Imagine if you made that manual, yeah, how good yeah, it would yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. yeah it'd be Like, it is, is, I tell you, it's actually unimaginable how much better it is. Mm. But we've done it. And it, it's a shame because the car's just gone back to Hong Kong literally last week. But the guys in the workshop, you know, we've, we've done this project, we've re engineered this center console. So it looks like the factory would have made it. Mm. It's like the same carbon, it's got the switches in, and it's yeah. manual gearbox. Yeah, I love that. And the guys, the guys have been testing it, and you know, because it's actually not as straightforward as it sounds to do. Mm-hmm. But it's also not that it's totally reversible. We could put it back to F1 in a, you know in a few days. Um, but it was a complicated project, especially from the ECU point of point of view. But the guys were like, "Oh my god, this car's incredible!" And I was like, it "Can't be that good." 
it's, I'm sure it's better, but they were like, I think it's a baby F50. I'm like, come on, guys. Wow. That's a big call. And then we were, we were doing a little video on it, so I got to drive it. And I, all I could think about for the next week is where can I find Another a cheap one. 360 Charles Stradale yeah. so that I can manual convert it, repaint it, retrim it. And it's all that's been on my mind since because wow. I suddenly thought, oh, my God. Like, I've accidentally made the best Ferrari here. Of recent, like, yeah. of the modern yeah. times. Yeah. And then obviously I got on to like, imagine if you made an Enzo manual. Mm. <laughs> well, uh, well, as we were walking around, actually, one of the first cars we saw was um, obviously the F40, yeah. um, and then the Aston Martin, um, oh, the one seven seven, one seven seven, and you know, we're just uh, John and I are ogling over, going, "Oh wow, this thing's amazing!" And straight away, <laughs> in typical James fashion, it would seem is, "Yeah, imagine how good it would be if we did this, this, and this." And the, one of the main things was, imagine if it was a manual gearbox. Yeah. And that's not, yeah, it's not out of the realms of possibility because, as we know. Aston Works did do a D, did a DBS conversion to manual, hmm. so you know. And I, as I understand it, the new what's it called? A, that is, no, it's not Val, a Velar, it's a Valar. Or Valhalla. No, no. The, the coupe thing that they launched at the Festa Speed. It's Victor. Uh, it's like the Victor, but it's, it's oh, not, I know what you mean. Yeah, is it called like a Velar or a Valar? Oh God, there's going to be people shouting at yeah. their head. How could you speak? Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's a manual, and apparently the engine is. Very similar to the 177. Mm. Okay. Therefore, I don't think it's out of the question, but we've just had that car serviced at Aston Works, and I replied and said, oh, thanks so much. It'd be great when we can manual convert them. And the reply was very much like, don't know anything about that. Um, Which to me was like either... Mm. They've revealed their cards slightly. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope they do it, because I think a 177 is the most beautiful modern Aston Martin built. In fact, in terms of a GT car, I think you'll be hard-pushed to find something that's better looking. Mm-hmm. It is let down by the gearbox. Doesn't mean that they're not worth buying, but at the value they're at now, they are at that value and not more because of the gearbox. But if we could take it to Aston Works and put a manual gearbox on it, I think it'd be worth a, a hell of a lot more. Feel a future project coming yeah. on here. Well, I th- I, let's leave that one to Aston, but I really hope they do it because the one seven seven is great and it deserves it. I think just going back to Ferrari for a moment because clearly that's where the um, that's where the interest and the specialities lie. Um, something. I think I picked up on as we were walking around is uh, we saw one, maybe two F40s in the first that we looked at. Then we go into the next room. Oh, there's two more. And the next room, oh, there's another one. And this is, and they're either in various stages of, you know, service or restoration or all that kind of stuff. And I said, wow, there surely is most of the F40s in the country here. And to which point James turned around and said, wait till we get to the barn. Yeah. <laughs> Do yeah, you have in, a number? I think in storage at the moment, there's 13 or 14. Wow. At last count, so, something like that. And then today we looked at, yeah, there were seven in the workshops and showroom. So that'll do. That goes enough. pretty well. Yeah. And yeah. We, had, we had more, uh, but, but because the dollar's been so strong against the pound and there's been this really strong move of F50s and F40s estates, I think we've sort of, unfortunately, released 10 to the US. But... Wow. Uh, but yeah, at one point, I think we were at sort of 30, but Remarkable. it's nice, you know, and it never goes away, you know, and, p- and other people out there do say, you know, I'm the F40 king, I've sold the most. It's not true. Hmm. Like, I just, it just isn't true. I don't even need to prove it. Like, we have sold the most F40s for sure. We love them. You know, we, you know, we have one, but we have all these cars around us. And anytime you come to the workshop, it will be like that. There will always be six or seven F40s there. Love it. How many do you reckon you sold her since, since the start? Over 300 for sure. Wow. It, it gets difficult to keep tra- like tabs of 
And if you said to me, but how many individual cars, it wouldn't be anything like yeah, as many as that, yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. lots of cars we've now sold four or five times. Um, but there have been over 300 F40 transactions. And I think it's probably close to 200 different examples. Um, and actually, that number might be inaccurate, because especially in recent years, we've been adding to that tally so quickly that I just haven't delved back into it. Because, you know, with technology, you go from a traditional stock book to, like, digital, and then you move from dragon to evolution so it's not as easy to track these numbers anymore but yeah. i can tell you if i look on my f40 database on my system it's like 700 cars on there 700 different chassis numbers so we're you know we're pretty up there with all the cars you're, um, you're but a lot of those we haven't bought because there would be an issue or maybe it was too expensive but yeah you're keeping uh, the uk economy afloat post brexit economy by exporting ferraris to the us it would seem uh, look brexit <laughs> brexit has been difficult mm. um, in some ways, but it's been good for us in other ways. And, you know, you can't knock it for that because at the moment, I don't know if we hadn't have had Brexit, but everything else that was going on was still going on. Do I think that the Brits would be buying more? I don't. Mm. And at the moment, the Brits are definitely sitting on their hands, quite rightly. Like, you know, uh, my generation left university in 2007. We've had cheap money ever since. Yeah. And we've built our grown-up lives buying houses, settling down, having families, cars, holidays, on the interest rates that we were at since then. Mm. And so now with the, the rises as they are, it's, yeah, it's trickier. So I, um, I, I don't think that Brexit would have changed that. I think that was always coming. Sure. We'd had cheap money for too long. Yeah. I think that's a very good point. Certainly what I found out when I went to remortgage and went, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like, <laughs> oh, God, look at this. I've yeah. got no money now. Great. Yeah. But, you know, cause, because... You look at all those numbers, you know, you could have bought a house in London in 1980 versus 1990 mm. versus 96, 2008. You know, the, our generation, the, the, the price changes, like it's, it's off the charts yeah. how, it's, how it's gone. We don't earn lots more as a result. So, yeah, all the cars are way more expensive, you know. Mm. So a question I really wanted to ask was, you know, from the outside looking in, um, I've never been here before and I have followed DK for some time and, you know, some idea of what you do, whether it be the website, social media, that kind of thing. Uh, but I definitely didn't allow myself to appreciate the scale of the operation behind the scenes, the bit that we don't see. It just in terms of physical premises for a start, we've been to three different sites with how many cars in storage now? In, in the buildings you saw, uh, there are over 300 over 300 cars and yeah. we're not talking you know average cars we're talking exceptionally presented cars at people's pride and joy and even as you said cars that have been in families for generations that entrust you to have them here and do whatever's necessary essentially so the question i'm keen to ask is when did that point of it becoming essentially it was a quite humble beginning with your mum and dad buying and restoring these ferraris to was there a knee point, really, where it suddenly came to this behemoth, really? Um, my middle brother, Jeremy, who's no longer in the business since 2014, but started in 95 or 6, I think, in the business. He was the one that was like, oh, we should do more sales. Because sales before was a client asked us, and it was like, okay. Or it was a car we owned that we were selling. There was always 10 cars for sale, but it wasn't... There wasn't a sales arm of the business. It was whoever. Yeah. And I think after a few years, Jeremy realized, you know, actually there's a good business here. And the F40 thing started with him originally. He okay. was like, it was back in the days when you'd personally import a car from Europe and it was easier. And he'd go to Germany, look at a car, drive it back. 
you know, yeah. <laughs> great, great <laughs> out of university jobs. So cool. But they were like 150K and it was good business. Um, and uh, so he sort of really saw that the sales side of things was the way to go. When I came into the business, I realized that, you know, and this was 2002 originally because I had a gap year before university. And university, you're only there 25, 26 weeks a year. So I was, you know, it was the same old thing. Come back from uni, what's new? Um, but by that time, I could drive and I could get involved and sell and, and have some direction. And I think I realized that we had such a good reputation and such good foundations that it needed to go to the next level. And my two brothers, I don't know whether it was because they just joined at the wrong time or they didn't have the same vision that I did. They just didn't, they were, they were sort of happy to like rumble along as the business was. Whereas I was like, come on, we've got to do this differently. We're we've got to go big. Yeah. We've got to go big. We've got to, we've got to have big showroom or not a big showroom because originally the show, main showroom here at the main office was only eight cars, but we had the farm over the road and yeah, we've got to have a nice showroom and we've got to have these premises that are just super smart, you know, block pavers in the courtyard and everything's, you know, like F1 style workshops, tiled floors, you know, no one doing what we do had tiled floors in 2007, <laughs> like no one. And I remember, and actually I went to a lunch this week or last week with the guy that supplied the tiles originally who came to see me and was like, what you have to do at this place is you have to tile the floors and I will supply you the tiles. And I was like, oh no, because it's like 25% more expensive per meter. And he's like, in 15 years time, you'll still have the same tiles. Whereas in 15 months time, your epoxy resin floor will look rubbish. Yeah, sure. right, yeah. It was totally right. It was the best thing we ever did was tiling everywhere. But going back to it, so that was my thing. It was like, we've got to do that. We've got to do this. And actually looking at the way we sold cars, you know, I, I, I always felt that, you know, we need to do better marketing, better service, history folios, things like that, which now are just common practice across the industry. Even, even, you know, in later years, I've been lucky enough to have some great sort of younger guys on the team who were like, let's get Alex Penfold along. And then once we did a few nice rolling photographs and sexy shots and sometimes light painting stuff, I'd be like, every car. Yes. What, even the cheap? Every car. Yeah. You know, we, we've set the bar now and you see it on social media. The other car dealers, every now and again, they try and do tracking and rolling shots, but they haven't got Alex on their side. Yeah, you know? he's, he's well, a bit of a rock I mean, star, isn't Not it? just Alex, but there are a lot, we use a few guys and they're all really good, but Alex has just got that, you know, yeah. little step above and yeah. I'm fortunate that, you know, someone that worked here was friends with him and brought him along and he likes coming to DK because, um, because we always have great cars and he's, he is, you know, an enthusiast of the highest level at the end yeah. of the day. Um, but yeah, so going back to your question, it was just sort of like seeing what we do and then realizing how important the workshop is because no one else has that. You know, there are no other big restoration and service businesses like ours that have a sales outfit the size of ours and vice versa. There's quite a few sales businesses that are quite big and they have a little workshop, mm -hmm. but we've got a workshop with 11 ramps in and like 15 guys and a full-time, two full-time engine builders and a full-time truck and truck driver and storage with 300 cars with four full-time, you know, just going on like that. Mm -hmm. It's just, and it creates this machine that costs a lot to run every month, but you know, it, it's, it's where you want to send your car. And, and I, I, you know, look, sometimes people don't necessarily, um, well, sometimes people don't want to be, you know, our clients forever. People come and go, I get that. And sure. um, we're not all ideally suited to each other, but I would say that the majority of our clients love the service we give them and, and would struggle to find a better service. Um, it comes back to what I was saying before. I've seen a lot of other car dealers of late, you know, running restoration projects. Um, 
but it's not the same as actually if you are a restoration business that now sells a lot of cars. And it's not like we've just started doing it. We've been doing big car sales for 30 years. And, uh, and especially in the last 15 years, you know, some of the most iconic car sales by dealers have been by us. You mm-hmm. know, and even this year alone, we sold a pre-war Alpha 8C. We've sold a really great GT40. Few, you know, within the last few years, we were sort of really behind that unicorn phenomenon, phenomenon with the F1 that we sold that year and the GT1 and the CLK GTR. No one else sold all three of those in a year, but we did all three, um, plus a Roadster, which we didn't advertise. Um, CLK GTR Roadster, that is. Yeah. So it's just sort of, you know, doing that. But like I said earlier on, it doesn't mean that we only focus on mm. the really high-value cars and the really wealthy guys. If someone wants us, you know, especially if they're an existing client, if they want us to help them sell their 355, we're all over it, as long as it's ready to retail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to, just cast your mind back for me to that turning point, that, that point where you were like, no, let's do this right. Let's put the tiles down instead of the epoxy resin or the polished concrete. Let's do it properly. What was the reaction like between, say, the brothers that perhaps weren't, didn't quite see the value in doing that long term? How did that pan out? Uh, I think here and now it's, it's an obvious path to take. In 2008, it seemed like a massive mistake. Yeah. The phone, you know, and I'm, again, I'm lucky that I've, I remember the early 90s recession because my parents lost a lot of cars because um, they wanted to keep the farm. You know, it all comes yeah, back yeah. to that farm, but they lost a lot of cars in the, in the early 90s. And, um, you know, it was, people forget how difficult it was from, let's say, 95, 96 until 2006. Mm. Like, the market was really not that great. It really was just very stagnant. And then... It was getting a bit better, and then we had, you know, the 2008 credit crunch, and yeah, it was terrible. The phone did not ring for six or seven months, and it was like, oh, it's time for Classic and Sports Cars advert to be renewed. Mm-hmm. We'll just resubmit the same one, and that was month wow. after month. And then it was that Christmas, you know, and that, so for me that was like huge pressure. Mm-hmm. As someone just out of university that never really had a real job, um, and I'd spent all this money, and it was like, oh. This was a mistake. Yeah. So initially, it was like, "What have we done?" Mm-hmm. But we all worked together to 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 do what we did, and I had a great relationship working with Jeremy, my middle brother, until he left in 2014, and we we started, you know, selling some big cars and doing better and better. And you know, by then we knew it was the right thing to do. And I guess the real turning point is when you see other people starting to move premises and upgrading and doing yeah. this and doing that. That uh, okay, actually, it it did work. I think we all got a little bit confused by JD Classics because I always used to look at JD Classics's place and think, oh my, like it's massive mm. and they're, they, they're doing really well. And I think everyone was like, that can't be true. And then they sold their business for a huge amount of money and then it all came tumbling down mm. sort of two years later and it was like, oh, yeah, okay, it wasn't quite what it was supposed to be. Yeah. But I think it was so close to working. I have a lot of respect for, for the guys that were that were running that business at the time because... Everywhere was immaculate. If you ever went there, it was an amazing place. Like mm. the buildings were great, and they didn't have the character of our old farm buildings here. But they're really nice industrial buildings. They had a lot of tile floors as well. And I can't remember if they did in the workshop, but they definitely did in the showrooms. And there was always like amazing cars everywhere, really beautifully presented. And they were buying and selling. They were doing well. I just think that a couple of mistakes along the way were made that that meant that what happened happened. And I, I think it'll make a great film one day actually yeah or a netflix documentary at the very least but it was you know it was a good business and i think it's a real shame for for the you know the guys that lost out with regards to that you know previous owners Mm. um but yeah going back to i think that was the 
you know, the proof was in the pudding when we started selling more and more of these big cars and getting trust, entrusted to sell big cars. And one of those was the ex Rob Walker 250 short wheelbase, which is the famous Sterling Moss car that he was listening to the radio when he won the TT in 1960, that was a car we'd looked after for 30 years, restored for someone in the late 80s, early 90s, um, belonged to another client of ours. And I can't remember the year now, but it was probably 2012 ish. He came to us and said, I've got a family project that I need some money so that I can, you know, move some money around. So I'm going to sell a short wheelbase. Will you guys help me? And we we sold it and um, it went to someone who's very big in Formula One um, for a record price. And it was very under the, under, under the radar sale. But when news came out, it was in the paper. It was so big. But the number they quoted was actually less than we sold it for, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of cool. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and and that was like, when, especially that car, I'm so grateful to, to the owner of that car, who's a great family friend um, and has had huge trust in us since. We've done lots of deals together that he entrusted that to us to sell. And, and it was Jeremy that sold that car, not me. Um, but it was like, these guys can deliver. They, they know the cars. It was the whole complete service thing. It was like, these are the right guys. They've known the car forever. They've restored it. They've looked after it. They know the clients. They know where to sell it. And, you know, within, you know, discussing it with three or four people it was sold and he was really happy with the result we were really happy with the result the buyer was really happy and he bought a great car and still has it to this day and yeah that was a bit of a turning point because it was like I think that year was definitely and I need to remember whether it was 11 or 12 mm. but that's where it really started to feel like okay we've got a machine here that really works and we can continue to replicate this and since then it's just been fine-tuning and, and adding I guess and actually even then we didn't have a storage facility like we have now that was only 2000. 13 or 14 that we bought the first building but even that was like ah all these international clients that want to leave cars with us because you can imagine somewhere like singapore i think it's 220 percent tax Mm -hmm. yeah that's right there's no point in taking a car there because there's nothing to do with it exactly right whereas the guys they leave their cars here quite often they have children at school here and they come over and they use the cars and enjoy them and actually when they're done with them the resale market's here, so it would be pointless to have taken it over there. Because Absolutely then, makes sense. You know, same with the um, same with the Aussie guys. Like my Aussie uh, Aussie business partner, he's always amazed when he's got eyes on a particular car or something like that, and then he comes over <laughs> to the UK and goes, "But is it, what's going on here? Why why is that car so cheap? I was like, it's just what it is over here because they have luxury car tax over there, and it's obscene. They end up paying basically double for the car. Yeah. So it absolutely makes sense to have the car here. Um, and have somebody look after it, basically. Yeah, and then you get the luxury of flying in, cars ready to go, gets, some, in some cases, delivered to the airport. Love, Absolutely, yeah. We're only stuff. 22 minutes from T5 with no traffic, yeah. so frequently we do that. That's brilliant. Now, we've given a lot of airtime to the uh, the Prancing Horse brand, a lot of Ferraris, and rightly so, because the F40 is one of my absolute dream cars, and we've seen more, more today than I will probably see in the next two years, which has been wonderful. But there is another very very haloed car that you seem to be quite famous for as well in both sourcing selling doing little bits of work to and that's the carrera gt which we've seen a few of including two painter sample cars you've that's got right, here yeah. which is just actually there's three but we didn't show you the white one <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah how, how did that come about and and again this is a one of the talking talking topics i wanted to cover was market values and fluctuations and we we said as we were walking around as our listener may be aware there is a currently an active recall for Carrera GTs um, which is resulting in 
UK owners of a Porsche Carrera GT being told to not drive their car until a suspension component is changed or upgraded or fixed or fettled or something. Um, so talk to me about that world of things. How, did, how does a company like DK suddenly become renowned for having not only being the guys to speak to for F40 sales, but perhaps even the guys to talk to for a Carrera GT sale? I think a lot of this comes down to us being, <clears throat> and as I mentioned earlier, my parents, you know, this was a hobby business. Mm -hmm. They loved cars and they founded this business. And luckily, as, as boys, we've all got the bug as well. And so we've always been active owners. You know, we race a lot. We show our cars all over the world and we own a lot of cars that we keep as our own collection. And so with that, you, you understand what, you like and you enjoy and what other people might like and enjoy and so the formula of a Carrera GT is great you know it's a stillborn racer carbon tub unique engine manual gearbox which today is you know we talked about that already but manual manual you know mm -hmm. everyone wants manual gearbox and um, and so a few years ago when not a few years ago at various different points during the cycle but when they were 300k and their 40s were sort of doing much better than them and there was a point where they were kind of the same money it's like, hang on, Carrera GT looks cheap. Let's buy five. And, and that really happened. As you do. Yeah, because <laughs> then, you know, there were people that we could, we, it wasn't all our money, but we'd go in yeah. with people. Mm -hmm. We bought five. And let's push this market. Let's go. Like, this is, th these are good cars. And so as the momentum builds, and then something that's really affected things in recent years is social media. Mm. You know, you'll see that if certain, and they're not influencers, but they're owner influencers. Yeah. Like there's, there's a certain guy who's done really well. He had a McLaren F1 GTR and a couple of Zondas and things. And if you see he's bought a, a Carrera GT, other guys are like, I must buy one. Yeah. <laughs> it almost becomes fashionable, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> well, they don't want to miss yeah. like the boat. Yeah. Um, I think he's had two, actually, or three, maybe. I wish he'd hurry up and buy a Z3M Coupe and I could sell mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that's, that, that's the thing. And, you know, the Porsche network probably doesn't support the Carrera GT sales that well mm. because they're an old car. And then in terms of the independent Porsche specialists, well, they always specialize in 911s. Yep. Yeah. And it becomes a bit of a price point thing. Once the car's got to 600K, they're kind of priced out of them stocking those cars. Yep. And so it was very easy for them to go, oh, it's Carrera GTs, leave that to everyone else because we're 911 guys. Mm. RSs, 4 liters, all that stuff. So, And it's very easy for us with our F40 you know, experience to say, well, the client profile is actually really similar. So not only do we know where or think we know where these cars are going to go, but who should own one? And so what better than someone coming to look at an F40 and they're like, oh, I didn't realize they're a bit scrappy in terms of their build quality. You go, you're expecting Porsche build quality, yeah. weren't you? They go, yeah. And you go, ha -ha, I have the solution. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. And, you know, and the paint sample thing's been interesting because we've seen with F40s that if you're lucky enough to have a right-hand drive car, which they're only seven built for the Sultan of Brunei or converted by Pinaferina for the Sultan of Brunei. And one of those escaped and is in our storage facility. That car has always commanded a huge premium because of its rarity versus yeah. 1,300 other cars or thir yeah, just under 1,300. So it's the same with the Carrera GT, paint sample cars, there's 20-something. Mm. So they've got to be worth more. You have to be. Like It's not just another Seal Grail GT Silver Carrera GT it's paint to sample yeah. and mine's the only midnight blue one well you know it, or cobalt blue or white yeah. it's uh, it all comes down to why my car's better than yours it's always about that and that's why mileage is always so key because people are like my car's been less abused than yours that's, that's all the mileage thing's about yep. 
Um, so yeah, we've really enjoyed the Carrera GT journey. Like really happy to be on the next part of it. The stop drive campaign is a pain. It doesn't stop the US, but in the UK, obviously, you know, insurance companies have said you can't drive whilst that's an active thing. But luckily, being Porsche, it will be resolved next year if, if we're all patient. And there's probably a bit of an opportunity right now for someone else to go out and buy five. You know, it's a lot yeah. more money now. But, yes. but, but, the, but the values are definitely not you know, appreciating quickly or going up mm. right now. But you've got to think when you look at how much all the new cars are. I mean, just look at how much a T33 is mm-hmm. as a new car. Yeah. And then you look at Carrera GT and go, oh. Yeah, hold on a minute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's established and it's had its cycle, you know, in terms of ups and downs, you know. Most of the people that own them can afford to own them, so they're just going to be quite stubborn. I think that's what you have to really think about when it comes to the values of these sorts of cars. Mm. When they've had big rises, generally the people that have bought them at that sort of level can afford to just hold them until they're worth more. Yeah. And that, that gives you that sustained growth, which you know they're not building anymore, so you've got a limited pool to choose from. Absolutely. How do you see the future of the business unfolding and, and the level of cars that you're getting in? Do you think there's a a chapter of cars or a particular generation of cars that you perhaps don't do much with at the moment that you might move into? Are you starting to see trends changing with regards to what people are wanting to buy or sell or modify? Um, yeah, look, we'll be, we'll, we'll, the, the market will dictate that. One thing I've been really clear to do as well in the business, and my father admits this, that he let me do this and that he wasn't confident in it, is that we haven't pegged ourselves on this is what we do. We will do a bit of everything if it's high quality, high value. Mm. And so, you know, if race cars are doing really well, 90s race cars, 2000s race cars, we'll go for it. If Carrera GT is doing well, we'll go for it. You know, if pre-war cars suddenly start doing really well, we'll go for it. Because we are educated in all of them because we've used and owned all of them and we have experience of them. Uh, and I, and I want to be really careful, you know, whilst we're Ferrari specialists, we're not, you know, solely Ferrari guys. It's just Ferrari is the greatest brand out there. Mm. They've been racing in Formula One the longest. They've had the most success. They have built the best road cars over the years. They are number one, no doubt about it. And that is, we have carved out a business around our relationship with that brand. And so that's our speciality and they will always be great. And then on the side, you know, if a guy has eight Ferraris, he's probably gonna have three or four other things. And we will also specialize in those other things. Um, But I won't, you know, I won't, peg ourselves in a particular bracket. I've got to be flexible and nimble. I think, yeah. I think the greatest testament to that was as, as we were walking through uh, around the farm, uh, we went through uh, yet another door that said, do not enter. Oh, yes, I like that room. Um, and we went into that room, and that was uh, what was effectively your dad's corner, if you will. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's his race car in there, uh, amongst some others, and his specific set of tools, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and also cars from you know his youth or where at least where he consider it to have started all the way back to Austin Sevens you know and uh, I, uh, as, you know to Let's not forget the mini oh and the mini of course nineteen fifty nine yeah. first owner mini uh, yeah incredible yeah that he ran in when it was new exactly yeah and it, it's so funny because the speedy the Austin Seven speedy which is like the dog's danglies of an Austin Seven <laughs> I saw it at Goodwood when he wasn't there and I and I knew that I shouldn't but I stupidly took a photo of it and said, oh, look, this is for sale. And as soon as I'd sent it on WhatsApp, I thought, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? And it didn't come. 
for a year. Uh, and then one day, Nick, the truck driver, turns up. He's like, you're not allowed to see this. And I'm like, what is it? <laughs> and I knew, I just knew, because like Harvey and the sales team had been a bit funny with me and dad had been a bit funny and my oldest brother had been a bit funny. Smell I, knew, I knew something was going on. And this... <laughs> Austin 7, there it was. Because you know? <laughs> I remember him telling me how much it was. I was just like, dad, when you drive the other ones? But look, it's fine. It's his thing. Yeah. And, I, and that's just... That's just um, me playing with him, so to speak. You know, I've got cars that are stupid, but um, he he never gives me a hard time about it. And you know, that's what it's all about. Like we, with the money we make, what do we do? We pour it, like without doubt, we pour it back into the business in terms of premises. Yeah, you can yeah. see that. Or a bit more stock, or some toy cars that are in the business, but you know, stock as well. And um, yeah, look, we try and enjoy different segments in the market. You know, I've got a. Uh, well, Dad and I have got a T50 coming because Great. we looked at it and, and, you know, as I said, my dad's really an engineering guy and he looked at it and he hates big cars. And he looked at it and he's like, oh, it's so small mm. and everything's lightweight. And, you know, spending a day with Gordon to go through it, just, you know, for him, it's heaven. Oh, it's an engineer's it. dream. Yeah, he loved yeah. it. So we've got a T50 coming. It's so exciting. I'm so excited about it. Um, and on the flip side, I've ordered a Pagani Utopia, which <laughs> I'm not quite sure why I did, <laughs> but I know it's a good idea. Like, I know oh, I'm going to love it because I just, I think, you know, and, I, and I, in order to work harder, you go to more car events. And years ago, we had a Grey Enzo and I used to go to the car events. People would come up and talk to me because they knew who I was because yeah. I'm the Grey Enzo. It must be James from DK. I'm not saying I've lost that, but it, you know, you just need that car that can just do everything really well. And I think the new Paganis are really, you know, the Zonda, well, funny stories about Zondas. I mean, the Zondas aren't fantastic, but they are fantastic in their yeah. own in their own way. And I do love them, but they're mad money now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, partly responsible for that, having sold three this year. <laughs> but um, but the uh, the Utopia, you know, it's got the looks of the Zonda sort of, but it's a bit more modern and it can be manual. So mm. yeah, uh, we just always try and have these bits, you know, these toys in inverted commas that you know ultimately we will sell and hopefully make a margin on because that's the aim of the game. Yep. Um, but sometimes we lose. And the ones that we are going to lose on, we probably end up keeping a long time, like the Austin 7s. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Love it. I'm just going to cut to a quick break, and then we'll, we'll for our last sort of half an hour or so, um, time permitting, we'll, uh, I want to delve a little bit into your personal kind of most sporty world, because I think it would be uh, remiss not to talk about it, because that is a, a fascinating chapter in itself. So bear with us, dear listener. A very short break. We'll be straight back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Driven Chat Podcast. We are back in the room, back in the green room. We never left the green room. 
We didn't. Um, we had a biscuit, I, though. I enjoyed a custard cream yeah. and a bourbon. So happy with that. Yeah. You don't have a jammy dodger? I did. I didn't, but now you've said it. I've just spotted there's a fig roll as well. There I've is, yeah. We've got everything here. All ages, years. remember. Yeah. We're not specific to any era. No. This is everything. true, yeah. Custard creams, a lot. Yeah. It should be a, a, a basis on how much we enjoyed the visit for a podcast episode was the, with the quality of the biscuits. I have this for you. Whenever I go into a job somewhere, if it's like a filming job or whatever, uh, the job could be the worst job in the world, the worst job in the world, but if the lunch is good, it's therefore mm. a good job. Yeah, yeah. That's, that supersedes everything. Yeah. It's, it's always the worst when they text you in the morning and say, it's probably worth stopping off at a petrol station, grab a yeah, sandwich. No, <laughs> sorry, I'm, immediately. I'm ill. Sorry, got to go. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Well, we, I think you've done an excellent job of trying to explain what DK does because mm. it's a great many things. But let's talk about you a little bit more specifically. Um, we will get to the racing, um, which you've done a wide variety and driven a wide variety of cars. Um, but one quick thing I just wanted to touch on was that your, your formal training, if you will, that you went to, you, you went to university to, to, to study mechanical engineering. Um, so to find yourself in a business like this, that obviously uh, benefits from that knowledge enormously, I think it's really quite interesting. And as for the conversation we had off air earlier was that you find that it has translated its way into how you run the business now quite significantly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, signing up for mechanical engineering should have come with a warning sign. I think it should. You know, because <laughs> the name definitely missells it. You know, it's a bit like buying a fast car and it's not fast. Yeah. Mechanical engineering, <laughs> very much mechanical about it. You'll never you touch me. anything, really. No. It was, um, as I said to you earlier, it just amazed me that sort of week one, there were two things that stood out about week one. One was how much maths and physics was ahead of me <laughs> and how many hours I had, um, you know, like 38 hours, I think it was, per week. And then you go back to halls and be like, oh, here's my timetable. All your mates who are on <laughs> sociology and geography <laughs> and Spanish and they've got 10 hours a week. And you're like... What, do what I get I three degrees for mine? Or <laughs> what? How does that work? Yeah. And then the other thing was, this is you know, showing me to be a bit of a spark brat, but having come from boarding school and being given all my tutorial sheets by the tutor and asking when I have to hand them in, he said, never. To me, that was like, amazing. Mm. I will not do any of these then. Yeah. And to everyone else who was in the tutor group, like, yeah, okay, I'll sort my structure out so I get through these because there's 10 weeks in the term, there's nine of these, so I should do one a week and have one week off. For me, I was just like, yeah, never doing it. Straight in the bin. <laughs> Come back to that in the summer term. <laughs> Which, you know, the summer terms, I still have nightmares about it. Sort of waking up and it's, and it's always around about Easter. And I wake up and it's light and it's five in the morning. And then I sort of doze back to sleep. And then I, I, I dream that I'm at union. It's summer term. Oh, wow. I've got exams and I've got to go to the library. And so I wake up in this mad panic. <laughs> I think, hang on a sec. I, st I genuinely still have that now. It's like I think it's like PTSD from being at university. It really is. It really is. And I'm, I'm like, oh my God, it's 20 years ago that I started there. And 16 or 17, no, 16 years since I left. What am I dreaming about? Yeah. And they ha to be fair, they have tailed off a little bit in the last couple of years. But not enough. Like, it still scared me. <laughs> you still wake up in a cold sweat. Yeah. But um, no, it, it definitely, it definitely gave me this. This, I mean, and this wasn't on the warning sign, and it should be that I can definitely deal with lots of problems at the same time because running a business is, is about problems. You know, mm. if it's all going smoothly, it's too easy. It's it's not only dealing with the problems as they come to you, but it's also 
preventing them or being prepared for them. So as a sort of anecdote in this business, my wife showed me this thing a few, well, 10 years ago called Trello, which is like an online listing system. All right. And I was convinced this was the future of the business. And it took me about five years to get everyone to use it. But now the business is run, not run, run, but run very much using Trello in terms of everything's on there from checking in cars to Mm. checking them out, marketing, conversations about jobs that have been booked into work, the whole thing. And whenever someone's new and I'm guiding them through the ropes, especially sales sales department, you know, spend the morning with them to go through like my expectations. This is how we do things. You know, I will say Trello will save you. And they're like, what does that mean? You say, within the the next three months, probably three weeks, Trello's going to save you. And what it is, is that because it's all saved and you can Mm. sort of come to a job and a list and it's not lost in WhatsApp or emails, because emails are the worst thing in the world these days. I hate them. Yeah, I get 200 emails a day and I'm... And if I want to find one, like Outlook is the worst program in the world. Sorry, Microsoft, but it really is the worst program in the world. You know, I want to remember how much I quoted for this and good luck. You know, whereas Trello, it's all there. And sometimes you've asked someone to do something and someone's dropped the ball somewhere (laughs) and you can, you can point your finger and it's there. Mm. Or simply you just can't remember and you go there and it's so easy to find it's there. So that all comes back to the engineering thing where I had so many things to juggle at the same time, you know, seven modules, a different night to go out to every night, <laughs> you know, I, I, multiple hangovers. Arguably most important, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it was all part of this like balance yeah. of university. And so now I come back and I definitely noticed, you asked about my brothers earlier, definitely the biggest difference between myself and they yeah. is that if there was a problem, generally they would either focus solely on that problem or if there was more than one problem, run away. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would be like, okay, there's 10 problems. There's always going to be 10 problems with a business with 50 employees and 400 cars. There's 10 problems. Which is the most important that's going to get 50% or 60% of my time? And then del- you know, put all the rest in order. Don't leave any of them, but the one at the bottom gets the least attention. And also little things in the way you run the business in terms of you speak to the guys in, in the service department. How are we getting on with that particular you know, project? And they're like, oh, we still haven't got this. Have you told the client? No. Why not? Because we haven't got it. But news that we haven't got news is mm-hmm. news. Mm-hmm. And so at least they know we're thinking about them. Yeah. Like, just send it, fire it out. Because that communication is so important. Absolutely. And, you know, structures and process. Even the other day, you know, someone who's changed his family office management team, they said, oh, James, the 275 and the other car, we haven't got the Classic, we haven't got the Folio, we think you've got it. I'm like, hold, hold my beer, hang on. We've got systems yeah, for this, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and and bang, there it was. Here's a photograph of it going in the car when it was delivered four years ago. It went, but I've got a scan of it because we do everything, you know, it's part of the process when Amazing. a car's checked out, everything's scanned, so we can help you, but That's we definitely don't have it. You definitely had it, and we've got copies, so it's fine. So it just comes down to those things that engineering definitely gave me the structure to do that, being mm. able to sort of multitask, prioritise problems, and have process. And, you know, the success, I think, of this business today is very much that you know car comes in as long as it's checked in properly and it's put into the the machine then the process should be effective i'm always trying to perfect it you know i heard a thing about foxton's of all places the other day (laughs) where they have like a weekly update of stats on their various houses and how many viewings and how many offers there are and they just feed it straight back to the client you know or they give them a portal i don't think we can do that because we can't be as open as that on certain yeah. things, but 
actually getting a report to the responsible salesman each week would be quite a clever thing. Mm. So we're working on that now with our with our web team just to you know improve it. So it's all about these little tweaks and fiddles and processes and procedures that I think a lot of companies do fail on. And I come back to you know my personal experiences with my cars. I always know it's down to process. It's a lack of process that cars going. Oh yeah, it's that one over there. Not is it ready to go? Mm-hmm. Have we done this? Have we done that? And from the sales team, especially, like it's so important. You know, someone's handed over a couple of million quid, like hard-earned money, for a car. You have got to put every effort into making sure that that's as flawless as possible. Yeah. But also, the reason these processes are, are there is because we're all human. We all make mistakes. Absolutely we right. forget things. Yeah, you can't yeah. be expected. The to clients remember. forget things. Yeah, you know, they're like, "Why have you done this?" And if you can say, "Well, <laughs> you, you asked, asked me, me on <laughs> yeah. the state," you know, because it's yeah. documented like that. Yeah, it's really important. That's great. My, uh, I, I, he gave me a little bit of a PTSD shudder there with the word Foxtons. That's where I started my working life. Oh right, which I believe. And yeah, <laughs> the, I mean the the um, the approach to. It's funny. I mean, everyone Foxtons for anyone that's not that unaware, it's a, a very, very, very successful estate agency based in London and into Surrey now as well, but uh, in, in London. And they for years were renowned for being the most cutthroat company to both sell or let your house through, but also to work for. Oh my God, they worked you so hard. And I went in as a, I think a week before my 18th birthday, I went in as this fresh-faced teenager, like oh, I'm going to work in the city. It's going to be great. And worked in their head office. I'm going to get a mini. As a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely <laughs> going to get a branded mini. And they would work you so hard. Like and we went dog. in eight in the morning till eight in the evening, six days a week. And that was the minimum. That's how you start. And if you're a minute late, you're out the door. Yeah. If you are, uh, it was it was just ruthless. But in the in the short time that I was there, it taught me so much about you know how to how to manage yourself, how to manage customer expectations. And as hellish as it was, and it, it really was back then, and some people have made an absolute killing working for them, that you really do have to be a particular way. But it's funny, the, that weekly feedback of make, making sure you speak to clients, making sure you... No news is terrible news when it comes to, I'm relying on a company to run a service or run something on my behalf. You want to hear if there's no news. Because it's always the overpriced cars yeah. that you've taken on, or house, mm-hmm. that you've taken on because the client wants you to ask that much. Yeah. But then he gets angry because you're not communicating with That's him. Right. But it's because there's no news. So actually, and we're not, you know, in, and that is actually one thing that we are not great at is if the car's not selling, like feeding back. Mm. We've had zero inquiries this week. We really should be better at that. And I'm trying to improve that. But no one else does it. No. I'm sure of it. No. Unless they've got three cars to sell. But if you've got 50 cars to sell, it's quite difficult to do that. But Absolutely. We'll get there. Um, but it's, yeah, it's all these processes. I actually think that there is an equivalent to Foxton's in London right now that, mm. that you may not, that is a bit closer to home. But... Collecting cars is a little bit like that because they've yeah. got this team of 100 young yeah, guys yeah, that are yeah. so like driven and passionate and mm. working really hard. But as I understand, quite a few in out. I think it's great to see that there's a modern business out there yeah. that's, that's, that's that's really interesting. Doing that. yeah. It's yeah. true. One of the very early podcasts we did, actually, myself and Amy, we went to the, the I nearly said it, nearly said Foxton's, we went to the Collecting Cars office in Putney and it did. It gave me that, that similar vibe. Lots did you of get a shudder? Energy. Didn't get a shudder. Um, less people standing up on their desks on the phone, you know, that sort of thing. It oh, wasn't bad. I'd love that. It was a mad one. No, or I don't know if you would. No, I just, I just, I have visions of like Wolf of Wall Street, you oh, know, people banging much, phones down and stuff yeah, like that. It was very much uh, wild. Yeah, stories for another time. So I feel like it, we should definitely address the, uh, the driving aspect, the motorsport aspect, and something that amazingly I've neglected to mention until now, and it's how you and I met 
once upon a time mm. in a massive Careful. greenhouse in Paris. And I, I'll never forget your mate on the skateboard. Richie Walton. Amazing. We were, yeah. I remember we were, we were cruising through the middle of France in G40. It was really hot. <laughs> I remember looking out the window and this bloke comes past it's with a mad camera. mad Welshman. On a skateboard, like down a hill. And yeah. it, was, it was so cool. Yeah. It was so cool. <laughs> Richard P. Walton um, is a name that many, many people will know and a lot won't. Uh, he's a photographer, not just automotive. I met Richie through my years of uh, Gumball 3000. Richie came on. In fact, he was a bit of an add-on for... Back at Gumball, we used to get the guys from Dirty Sanchez on each rally, which was both a genius idea and a terrible idea, as you can probably work out why. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what Dirty Sanchez is, television show, Google it. If, if you're enjoy. about 30 years old you're, or ish, you yeah, probably yeah, yeah. know. Absolutely. You've seen far too many scrotums and staplers for your own liking. Um, and it's or not enough, depends who you are. But. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Richie was, uh, was associated with those guys and then... Yeah, as years went on, I used to involve myself and Tim Hutton, who've done a lot of stuff together, used to involve Richie and things. But yes, so to, to paint the picture of where we were, so Tour Auto, wonderful big event that happens. Uh, it is every year, isn't it? But yep. it's, the, the route changes at every But the, the, it, it's like Start Paris. Yeah. Five days rally across France. It's 5,000 kilometres. No, maybe 3,000 kilometres. Yes, yeah. Every, there are, so it's five days, and I think there are 11 special stages, maybe yep. 14. Sounds about right. Yeah. Something like that. So each day it's... it's a very indirect route through France as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's exactly and it's like it's, you're going to the Pyrenees, or yeah. you're going to Nice, or you're going through the Alps, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's always an endpoint, obviously, and you stop at different places every night. And, uh, and it's mainly for pre-66 GT cars, but there is also a class up to 73. But in order to win it overall, you've got to be in a pre-66 car. And um, and it's a grueling event. Mm. It is grueling. And that was, I think, when we met, that was my second year. Because we did we win? You won. Yeah. So that's my second year. Yeah. So the yeah. the great thing was the, the 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 story that makes this so good is the fact that Tim and I, so Tim Hutton, who's going to be a guest on the podcast in the very near future, Tim and I went along to cover the event as media. We were given media passes as such a. a no disrespect to the French organisation. I was going to say in my head. I was going to say Such in response to what you were going to say. Not knowing you're going to mention the French, I was going to say it's because they're French. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was as a, uh, as somebody that's made a career out of organising an event. It was a typically French affair yeah. where we managed to get some media passes. And by the way, Patrick Peter is very open about the fact. Oh yeah, that yeah, they yeah. Are French. Absolutely. Uh, I remember going into the media office and be, uh, to get our passes. I think we had like pink bibs, if I remember correctly, pink media bibs, going into the media centre of the. Um, the what's that building called? The, the Grand Palais. The Grand Palais, yeah, in Paris. And this, <laughs> this casual, like, 17, 18-year-old teenage events person, like, hello, I'm here to sign as media. Okay, do you want to see my paperwork? No, the vests are over there. Brilliant. Okay, do you want to see my insurance? No. Right, brilliant. So Tim and I walking out into the Grand Palais, we had no plan of what we were going to capture. All we knew is we were covering for a magazine this incredible event. We were going to get loads of photos, get some copy, try and get some video content, just try and get as much as we possibly can, but with no plan. And there we were, walking around this hall, and we see a English Ford GT40 registration, one muff, and I kid you not, I saw the number plate and went, that's quite funny, let's follow this car. We and, then found out. And then, and then so the year, it was our second year, so I was doing it with my great mate, Andrew Smith. Yeah. He's from Edinburgh, extremely successful guy in terms of, uh, didn't go to university, uh, property developer. Well, actually, he was a car dealer originally, selling Citroens, and then became a property developer through his, you know, contacts in Edinburgh. And um, I met him 
oh, 2009, I think, something like that, at Silverstone. And my mate Ollie Bryant was like, oh, you should meet mm-hmm. this guy Smithy. He's mad. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he was like, hi. And I was like, oh, so you, what are you racing? He goes, well, I, I, I've just bought um, a Lister and a, uh, I've got a continuation uh, T70 being built. I'm like, blimey, that, that's spicy. What, what have you done before? He's like, not much. And then he's like, <laughs> and I've just bought a Group C, a, a, a Group 2, or a, what is it? A, uh, a Group C car, but a P2 Group C car and a, and a Curie Cost car. I've just been out on it. It's mega. And I was like, what? Yeah. Suddenly, I felt good at racing. I'm like, who's this guy? <laughs> like, this guy balls it. must be so big. Because yeah. he just came across as this really normal, nice bloke from yeah. Edinburgh yeah. who didn't look like a racing driver. I mean, no. he doesn't today, to be honest. Sorry, Smithy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but su- so successful over the years. You know, Later on, he did a Curiacos, the revival with, with the boys. I didn't do it. Um, and you know, went on to do really well in Blanc Pan and Spa Twenty Four Hours. Had a couple of podiums in their class and like, re- done really well. But yeah, this this <laughs> Andrew Smith was my co-driver. And we own the GT Forty together. We've owned yeah. it since twenty twelve. He convinced me to buy it when I was drunk at Goodwood once, and he'd been trying for a year to buy my half share because he couldn't afford the restoration, and my half would pay for the restoration. And uh, and I bought it. So we had had a go the year before twenty sixteen. That would have been, mm-hmm. and we caught fire. Um, yes. uh, at the start of the first special stage on day one, oh. which is not great because it's a five-day rally. And it was like, I mean, you could make a comedy film about that, that rally for us because we got there and we were all super serious and we like <laughs> spoke to loads of people that had done well in the Tour Auto. And by the way, the English notoriously do badly on the Tour Auto because mm. we're not French. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, we'd like rolled out of Paris at five in the morning and we're doing the road stages. As I was saying earlier, you know, each day there are special stages. So on average, there are three special stages a day. Usually it's two closed road, like 11 to 15 kilometer rally, tarmac rally stages, and one circuit race where circuit race someone does on their own. And the, the closed, rage, closed stage, um, the closed road stages, someone navigates and, and someone drives. And the, and the pace notes are limited, mm. like very limited. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, because we were like both, you know, got this big ego we were swapping. So we were doing one stage at a time. So we got to this first stage and we went, started up having had a coffee in this lovely square, like 25 kilometers out of Paris, thinking we're going to smash this rally. <laughs> and, and it's all about the special stages because the shorter your total time over the, over the course of the rally is the winner. Yeah. But on the roads, you have to do it within a certain stage. You can't get caught speeding, you know, and it's very easy to get lost. So you can easily go over time and be late for checkpoints and things. And it's five days and it's like up at six, bed at midnight, up at six. Yeah. In a GT40, really hot, noisy. If it's raining, miserable because your ass is wet the whole time. Mm. It's it's not easy. And uh, on the first year, yeah, we'd had this fire. Like we were getting in the car, and everyone in the crowd's like suddenly running away from the car. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> and behind us, the thing's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, oh my god, I've got this. And bless him, Smithy could barely get out the car because he was. Bit heavier than he should have been. He was like struggling. He's I'm tall lad as well. I'm like he? out the car. Yeah, I think he is six foot five. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm like out the car. And actually, to be fair to him, he'd had a really bad motorbike accident a few years before on the Baja and had like smashed his shoulders mm. to pieces. So he's not as mobile as he was. And I'm like out the car and I'm like, how do I put this fire out? Because we don't want to do the fire extinguisher because that game over, yeah, yeah. as you know. And I'm like, I've got my gilet and I've got it on top of the carbs and it's just gone. <laughs> it's like it's up in flames. And then someone from the restaurant comes out and you're like, and it's just fire extinction oh, everywhere. And no. by that time, Smithy 
and what had happened was he hadn't turned the ignition off, so it was still just mm. fueling it. Right. And he, by that time, he's like, oh, no, game over. Like, press the fire extinguisher button, and it's like, it's everywhere. Yeah. And, it's like, and, and also, this fire extinguisher stuff from the hotel is like, or the restaurant was like... Horrible powdery stuff or oh whatever. Oh, my God, it was yeah. horrendous. So we, so we were trying to fix it there, and the support team came there, and eventually we get to the special stage, and we're like, we're here to do the special stage, and they're like, you're joking, mate, we're closing. <laughs> so we did it anyway, we're like, we're going, time us. <laughs> we get to the end, and, we, and it like the throttle sticks, and we're at the side of the road, and we're like, I can't believe this. Mm, and it's, so, it's, you know, it's a 35 grand event to do yeah, this. Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and we're looking at each other, like, oh my God, I what can't happening? believe yeah. this. It's awful, awful. We're at the side of the road, and eventually we get like recovered, and someone from DK flies out with some carbs so we get to the town where we're supposed to be but the, the rallies are right off but we've mm. got four more days so we thought we'd just have fun yeah. so we had loads of fun we got the car fixed we had another fire later on in the rally which is a different reason but, and it was the same again where like this guy comes with the fire extinguisher and you're like no just stop it don't you dare <laughs> and he's like and you say no and he just squeezes the trigger again and you're like what? <laughs> yeah. and you ju- and you just you're so angry but you're like you're a marshal doing a job yeah of course but you're a willy like, what have you done and i never uh, and, uh, and after that stage i remember we were like driving down the road and you hit the brakes and like all this blue stuff just like because this fire extinguisher powder was blue and it was like to the front of the carpet oh. and it's like blowing on your face and you're like <laughs> i think i'm gonna get cancer from this you know Brilliant. It's yeah not good and then we're at the hotel like washing our overalls because we took two sets but we've had two fires so we've had two sets of like fire extinguisher <laughs> stuff That's so we're washing them, something you we're washing the bus so we had a miserable first year but we actually did really well in terms of like we beasted a few of the special stages and the french were like who are these guys yeah and so next year we came back and we're like, right, we've got this nailed. We know how we're doing this. I was going to say, I no don't... fires. And then you guys come up, and Smithy's like, oh no, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't think so. It'd just be a distraction, be a waste of time, be annoying. And I was like, and at that point, I was starting to realise how important social media was because yeah. it was like early days, 2017. Sounds mad. It's only six years ago, yeah, but yeah, yeah. it was early days of it. And I was like. You know what, Smithy? I'm going to be selfish here. Um, it's pretty good for DK, so we can do it. Yeah, yeah. And so we did it, not knowing that we were going to win it and smash it and yeah. win the event overall. So we beat all the pre-73 cars. So you it was say like, that. Yeah. You say that. And you would have thought that the prior year would have been quite humbling in the expectations of, okay, we'll enter this next year, but let's, you know, let's be reasonable about this and, you know, we'll have a go. Hopefully there won't be any issues. But I seem to remember, and I admittedly can't remember if it was you or Andrew, at the start of when we were having the conversation of, can we follow you guys? And one of you just went, yeah, and we're going to win. <laughs> like, nice. Straight out. I was like, okay, okay. these guys are... Fair, it's probably me. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can absolutely. And but we're going to win. But the problem is we're both really competitive. So yeah. when you're swapping the driving, if someone wins a special stage, the guy that's doing the next one's like, well, the tally... Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, the, I, I think it's fourteen special stages, it's something like that, or eleven, ridiculous. or whatever. I've still but, got the roadbook somewhere. But it's like I cannot come second to my teammate. Yeah. So even if you're winning the rally, and, it, <laughs> and it actually we lost out the next year because we broke a gearbox on the penultimate stage with a seven-minute lead, oh. and I was driving. But it was going to break. It was always going to break. But you know, you're just like he won, so I've got to win this one. Mm. And then if you come second on a special stage and he's won another one, you're like. Yeah, I need to. Do I got to level so, up. So, so, but it's a great event. Like, mm. you know, I've never spent that much time with my arm pressed up against someone else mm. who's a man for like five solid days. And as I said, it's so tiring. And then when we did it in the Cobra on the fourth year, it was like, this is easy. It's mm. a walk in the park. Not as easy to win special stages, mind you. But it did feel a lot easier, like without the noise and the heat. And, yeah, for sure. Know. But the GT40 is just magic. Best car. Like, yeah. When you take that to Le Mans, oh my. You know, you come out the pit lane, you got the 
through the first bit, which is good. And then you get on the Molson straight and you just think, oh, wow. Just let it, let it rip. This is special. Yeah. yeah. Especially in the middle of the night. It's like out of this world. Yeah. So let's turn the attention towards your driving because it seems like you have one, some ability, which is great, or we should just say quite a lot of ability, but also what, you've, what you seem to be synonymous with now is driving cars that are sort of almost like quite unicorn-ish, if you will. Um, yeah, I remember distinctly from the Goodwood uh, Speed Week, you were driving a, was it a Dallara? Yes, yeah. Amongst maybe some other things. Yeah, so Goodwood Speed Week was great. Um, it was, uh, I think I won two races there and yeah I came second in the Dara and the because we were all waiting for that car because we just I knew what it was going to sound like but didn't quite appreciate really what it was going to sound like the funny thing is that I own that car as well half each with Max Gerardo and I and he was like oh speed week thing and they want to they want the Dallara there they're going to do like a standing start sort of hill climb sprint thing one lap and in my head, I was like, that sounds like the most ridiculously dangerous thing I've ever oh, heard of in my for life. For sure. I am not interested. Yeah. So I said, Max, mate, I'm doing two races, so I'm quite tied up, so I think you should do it. And he's like, oh, okay. Because Max is just like, he's amazing like that. He never says no to anything. He's like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, I'll do it. So I was like, you are crazy. <laughs> and, uh, and then when we got there, he goes, oh, I messed up. Sunday's, I think it was like his daughter's birthday. It wasn't his daughter. Well, maybe it was actually. It was something stupid that he just couldn't miss. He's like, I can't do Sunday. So I was like, oh, I'll do Sunday then. And um, I did the first run and was like, oh, wow. It was, actually, quite, it was quite up on the time, wasn't it? Really good. Like, not only was the car really good around Goodwood, because in my head I was like, it's going to be bumpy. It's obviously dangerous. You know, not much runoff. I'm going to be going really fast. Yeah. But the car was just so good. Yeah. And it was... The bump, it, like, there weren't any bumps. And turn one, four water, even no name, was just so fast. And even without having had a practice, it was like, I'll get my eye and see what it's like. Mm. And just sort of, you know, on the brakes a little bit, down a gear for no name, and then flat again, and then... Which, for anyone that's unaware, is a terrifying corner to take at pace. I think of Sterling Moss every single time I yeah, go through yeah, yeah. there. Like, you have to respect it. Yeah. And, so, and then I did the time, and it was like, oh. Oh, this is cracking on a bit. And the next run is the final. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, I could do quite well here. <laughs> so then in my head, I'm like, why didn't we take the restrictors out? Why don't we have sticky hill climb yeah, slicks? Yeah, yeah. You know, none of this stuff. We were running slicks on the front and wets on the rear, I think, because we were worried we couldn't get the temperature or something like that. Obviously, restrictors. And then, yeah, went for it and came second. But the F1 car was always going to beat it. But it was like... But it was awesome. Oh, it was, it was amazing. a spectacle to watch. It was um, so good. Absolutely brilliant. In fact, I have, you just reminded me, now you said Max, because I have a story about that. I was driving... Uh, SCD, you know, when they do the secret meet, it was one of the first mm. ones they did. And I was driving the, you know, the Calsonic Group A um, Nissan. Yeah. GTR. Uh, the, the R32 yeah. um, GTR. Uh, and I was driving that, and it was the first time I'd ever driven the car because we were going to drive for a film with Rick later on. And I was just cracking on, like just sort of like trying to build my way up. And it, you know, it was it was still it's an extremely fast car. And I thought, all right, I'm doing quite well here, coming onto the back straight. And then I like glanced to the mirror like that, and this Delara comes up the inside like I was fucking standing still. And I've got the video somewhere, and it comes over the crest, you know, into the braking section at Donington, into the uh, into the chicane. And as he's on the brakes, these two licks of flame just go bang out the back <laughs> of the exhaust like that. And I was just like... <gasps> a giggly charge. Yeah, yeah. And, and here I am driving a really, really super cool car. <laughs> and I thought, oh, 
you know, I'm the boy here kind of thing. And they got absolutely spanked by Delara. <laughs> I mean, that, that car has been one of those, shouldn't have bought it, had no intention of buying it, bought it by mistake, almost. Where 20, <laughs> how, how do you buy a Delara by mistake? So in, in 2013, I think it was, we had a 250 LM that we were selling at RM Pebble Beach. And it had been a bit of a, a trauma, that car. We'd had it for seven years and it was, Classic A was difficult to get. But we got it in the end and it sold and it made a really good price. And we were like over the moon as a family because it was a big headache, suddenly like weight lifted and we'd made money. And Max, Max, the next day we saw him, we were like, thank you so much, Max, because he did a great job. He was a fabulous auctioneer, you know, one of the best of, of recent times. And, um, and, and there we were. Uh, and he was like, now I need to talk to you about something tonight because it was a Saturday night. And he was like, Last lot of the auction, this Delara LMP1 car, did Le Mans three times, no reserve, guide price of like 100, or oh, it was like guide price of 200, $300,000, but we've got no one on it. We're going to buy it. Wow. And I was like, I'll give it a go to $200,000. He's like, yeah, no, we're going to buy it. And so there he is, and, and, he's, and we're going, and I bid, and then it gets to a point, I'm like, no. And he goes, executive decision, next bid, bang, hammers it down. Because he's, the, he's on the roster. He's like, executive decision. He did one more bid, even though I didn't bid. And he's like, executive decision, because someone else had started bidding. He's like, you're not having it. We're having it. And I was like, no, I'm cool. We don't need this. Because at the time, there was no race series for it. Yeah. It's a V10 engine, carbon tubbed LMP1 car. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. That did Le Mans three times. But what am I going to do with it? Yeah, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. I remember we got it back to England, and it's like, well, we better go do a track day then or a test day. So we went and did a test day. And I was like, so blown away by the thing. I flew to America the next day and my neck was so stiff and I woke up in America having slept on the flight and couldn't move my neck for three days. Wow. But now there's race series for it and, and yeah, we've had so much fun with the car. So it's one of the best things we ever did. What a fantastic and, day. And uh, highlight being racing at Le Mans in 2021 in the support race mm. for the 24 hours and it was a COVID year. So it was quite small crowds. And when, when we were doing the race and you came in the pits, all the guys from the garages that were working on the real 24-hour Le Mans cars wanted to watch because the car sounds amazing that yeah. V10 oh god yeah yeah and obviously yeah the, the, the speed week thing was cool as well was really that was cool. mega and actually Gubbefest of speed like I remember I think I came third there or something or fourth or, but it was you know the year that the Solbergs were there with their rallycross cars which were insane yes. and I think I came man, maybe I came third but yeah love that car so it's Brilliant. a cool thing what year was that was that 21 what with uh, Goodwood yeah because I think I, well, I was driving it feels like it was pre-Covid so maybe oh, it was maybe. 2019 mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, that's just one of the cars that we seem to associate your name with now. Um, and latterly, obviously, you've been racing in British GT in a Mercedes run by two C's. Two C's. Yeah. Um, we'll go into that. We'll go into that uh, story in a moment. But the, 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 where did you start racing? Because obviously, you didn't, you know, get straight away get into cars like this. Right. And also. There has to be a certain level of skill to drive these kinds of things because it's not the easiest things to drive in the world. Yeah, so I I always loved like tearing around the fields on quads and go karts and things like that. Never yeah. had motorbikes, but quads and go karts. I had a mini for the fields, <laughs> so I had a Clubman GT which I did a lot of laps in, uh, lots of laps on the quad. But I didn't kart or do anything like that because I mentioned I went to boarding school, so it wasn't really possible. Um, and so when I left school, worked in the family business, went on a bit of a gap year travel thing but it wasn't really for me like did two hour two two months i think in early the early part of 03 and uh, i remember getting an email from my dad saying just been south africa for the springbok series bought your race car <laughs> and i was like oh <laughs> what is it okay and then he sent me a picture and it was like an mgb fia racer and i was like cool 
a uh, bit of a war going on again, or I think it was war or SARS or everything. Maybe it was Gulf War and SARS. But I was like, so I think I'm going to come home because it was just like, I'd like to go racing. So I got back and I remember being so annoyed because I'd wanted to, I'd always wanted to race. And my brother had already gone and done it. And he's nine years older than me. And he'd always had the opportunity, but was never really into it. But because my dad had bought me a race car, he was like, oh, this looks good. So he'd already gone and done a test air in my race car. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you bastard. How does that work? Yeah. So anyway, so, so in the end, Jeremy and I went racing in MGBs and we did a lot of seasons in them. I mean, from 03 to 08, I did like five years in MGBs. And I Great. think that was really good that I didn't try and do loads of other stuff immediately. I yeah, did no. like solid seat time in an MGB, making the most out of it. Really enjoyed it. I had some great racing. There's a guy called Tom Smith who's like Mr. MGB who's a little bit older than me, but you know he was always the quickest. My first season racing against Holly Bryant, who's one of my best mates now, but that's where I met him. And then he went off to do British GT literally after the first year because he had that break. Um, but yeah, loved it. And then, you know, have been allowed or have had some great race cars. Um, but fortunately, I think because I had so much time with F40s, I've always respected cars and power and the way they, you know, building up to things. Yeah. So with all the cars I've raced, I've always respected them. I've always been a bit apprehensive initially, which is a really good trait to have, I think. Absolutely right. A lot of people just go hell for leather immediately and bin it. Yeah. You know, and I've, I've fortunately not had anything to write home about over the years, which is, you know, considering I've been racing 20 years mm -hmm. and like I can say, actually, my biggest accident was in British GT last year when someone tapped me into a spin and someone else T-boned me. Mm. But it wasn't really me like crashing into a wall. Yeah. That is my biggest accident ever. And apart from that, very little. So with Goodwood, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate that we've you know, I've been able to drive other people's cars, but also that we managed to buy the right things that were competitive. And yeah. my Tajiro, for example, you know, no one wanted it when we bought it. And it was it was 50 sports cars for me. I used to go watch Dab racing in his Testarossa and see these D-types and Listers and probably the Tajiro, but didn't really know what it was and think that that's the sort of racing I want to do. Like no grip, lots of power, no yeah. weight, quite dangerous. Proper but, handful. But, you know, yeah. And, and so having bought that car, and that was 10 years ago in December 2013, and so we restored it twice because the first time it didn't, and not by DK, but by race preparers. And the second time the guy's got it really right and have sort of continually like fine-tuned it and learnt how to drive the car. It's incredibly tricky to the point now where I can do, I've done twice now, a lap that's sub-minute 125 at Goodwood, which is wow. very fast yeah. for, for that. And when you watch the onboard back, because you think, how did I do it? And you watch it back. And it's, both of them, I think, were in qualifying. And it's like, oh, <laughs> that's close, you yeah. know, but it's just the best feeling that, you know, that... that but all the different varieties of cars I've, I've driven, I'm so lucky. You know, all of them are different. And everyone always says to me, which is the one that you like the most? And the standard answer is the one I won in last. Like, mm. that's the one that is with you at that point in time. You're like, love that, love that. And Goodwood, you know, have been, Goodwood's not an easy event to race at, but they've, for whatever reason, have been really good to me. And I'm very grateful. And over the years, I, I can't remember the stats exactly off the top of my head, but I've won, I think, so I've been on the podium nine times at the Revival, won seven races. One year I was the only person to win two races at the event. Uh, Speed Week, I won two races and came second. Members meeting, I think I've won five races. So like, I've, I've had such a good record at Goodwood. But the modern racing, you know, I hadn't done any of that until recently. But it just felt like I'd tick the box with the historic stuff because I've done a bit of everything. And Definitely right. For me, it's the other way around because I've... I've only ever raced like the super modern stuff really. And then uh, the, there's a really, really big part of me that wants to go and do historics. Cause I, 
just like you love the I love the car moving around mm. I love the idea of really having to figure it out and all that kind of stuff whereas not that driving a current GT car is easy by any means but certainly they're way more accessible than a historic car mm. yeah yeah it's it's um like all the different well all the cars are quite different as well and a lot of people drive around problems and that's the thing I found surprising with the modern cars is you don't drive around them you, you report the problem mm-hmm. so for ages I wasn't saying anything and they're like we've done this is it better I'm like yeah it is better I should have said something shouldn't I because it just <laughs> yeah. you know, instead of saying because I don't want to be the guy moaning on the radio but I feel like in modern racing you should moan because then that helps them for sure. make the car go faster absolutely given your experience in the variants of cars that you've had through the doors here both as a cars to, to fix restore sell and also the the world of motorsport that you're now in is there anything on the hit list of god i'd love to race insert car here i want to do le mans yeah. you know that's for me it's it's uh it's the target that's there um i i grew up around racing cars and my father's always raced um i had moderate success he did not not like i have but i've been lucky that i've had him behind me that's mm. just like go do it it's been so good for business. Yeah. You know, the reason we do it's for business because you meet people who want to buy and sell, who want to spend money on the cars, who not quite sure what the next road car or race car purchase is. And I also think it's so important. I've touched on this a little bit already. So important in my position when someone's trusting me with millions of pounds worth of their money to place into a car, mm. that I give them the right advice. And how could I possibly give them the right advice in a race car if I don't race? Mm-hmm. Yeah, too right. You know, if you don't race, how can you... How can you possibly be qualified to give that advice? Hmm. Same with Concours events, same with restoration. You know, it all comes back to this. So from a business point of view, it's so important. And when you stop racing, because every now and again we have a quiet season, you absolutely notice the difference. Mm. Less sales, less interaction with the clients, just less. And people think, well, you're racing too much, spending too much money. It is pure PR. Yeah, yeah. of course. It is pure PR. And, um, and that's where the modern stuff's come into its own in the last couple of years where someone said to me come and have a go in this gt3 car i'm british gt i'm doing it as well as gt world challenge for seat time i want to get to know the car better but i need a bronze and uh i was like ah oh, be terrible i only race old cars that go sideways and <laughs> you know and he was like no you'll be all right and he was all, he was right actually i'm so grateful to him sam deham you know he was the one that said come do this i'm really grateful um and i did two races with him and that winter i was like oh, I've really got to do this (laughs) properly now. And so last year and this year, I've done two full seasons of British GT, made a load of new friends, lots of new clients. Interesting that when I go to the historic race meetings, that people that I know really well, but I don't really speak to that often because there's not much to talk about, come and talk to me about modern racing because everyone wants to do it. Everyone wants to get that feedback and say, like, is it hard? And they also like the fact that someone that's done well in historic motorsport has gone into his modern motorsport yeah. and shown all the other Rams how it's done. 100%. Not, yeah. I'm not blowing my own trumpet there, but this year, you know... I don't know, James, sounds like you are a little bit. <laughs> well, no, that's what they're saying to me. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I agree with them. Yeah. <laughs> but they do, they say, oh, it's so nice to like, you've got all these guys that have been doing British GT for years and yes. then yeah. one of us boys from the historics driving old cars in their eyes yeah. comes and has a go and after two seasons is, you know, 
that one round is putting on pole by half a second. It's, yeah, they love it. They uh, love it, and it's and because it is a real camaraderie. All the guys with the old cars, we're all mates. Oh god, yes, we love racing together. It's a very different environment. Yeah, um, yeah. No, well, I, yeah, I've followed your journey through British. It's been been great to watch. Particularly, I mean, the Mercedes for me is it's just my favourite car out of the lot. I think it's the prettiest. I think it sounds the best. The livery actually on the DK car looks mega. Mm. Um, but really, a really interesting point you made was in terms of you know how the how the relate how the racing relates to the business and the success of the business is so it's something that i think often gets overlooked because um certainly for yours you've proven it and like with with the business i'm involved with the te- the the guy that owns the company uh has the race team as well and it you know it seemed from people that don't really get it just see it as a huge expense mm. which it is um but Nine times out of ten, I, in fact, I would say ninety percent of the business is done through referral, and that often means being in the same place, the same paddock, having a common interest in race cars, cars, car events, whatever. Yeah. Because the people that are doing that, often in the background, are obviously you know running successful businesses, etc. So it's just a melting pot of a and fantastic it's, network. It's that camaraderie as well. You know, you'll. So, as an example, people have called me in the past and said, "You don't know me, but I actually also race at Goodwood." And I've seen you racing, uh, and I've got an F40 that I've owned for 20 years, and I'd like you to sell it. Brilliant. There you go. Like there's, there's your proof. Or this year, there are a couple of times where I've sold some big cars to guys who I've spent a lot more time with because I've been doing the modern racing. Well, not necessarily spent time with them, but we've talked a lot about it because we've got that common, common ground, and it helps build relationships. And, you know, everyone's got the same... It's this, like, petrol in the veins thing. It's, it is. It... Mm. it, 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 it yeah, it breeds, it generates business, it generates better relationships. And equally, it comes back to like the complete service thing. I'd like to think in a few years' time, maybe I could have ticked that Le Mans box. And by then, I'll be able to say to someone who wants to get into cars or is kind of into cars and has come into some money, whatever it is you want to do, I can advise you from a personal level. Whether it's yeah. you want to show a car at Pebble Beach, I've done it. Whether you want to do British GT, I've done it. If you want to race at Goodwood, I've done it. If you want to race at Le Mans at the Le Mans Classic, I've done it. If you want to do the Tour Auto, I've done it. If you want to restore your two seven five GTB, I've I've done it. You know, it's it's this whole package of experience that puts us where we are as you know maintaining what we do. Yeah. Um, and it, and Dad's always said, you know, this business like racing is our PR. It's always been his thing. Even when he wasn't winning, he still did it because, you know when he was doing the Shell Historic Challenge, which was a big thing in the late 90s, early noughties with the 50 sports Ferraris, he'd have two trucks of cars that he was running for clients because people raced Ferraris then and his car would be there. And if he, he wasn't racing, the guys would be like, you don't understand because you're not, you're not racing. Whereas yeah. he was racing with them, so he understood the problems they had and the things they wanted to do differently. He was one of them. Brilliant. That's fantastic. It makes so much sense. And, and, and I guess that luxury as well of, rather than you having to say, I can advise because I have done, it's that, moving in these circles people not needing to ask people knowing you've done it you've experienced it you know what we're up against it's just great i mean the, one of the first questions we asked was you know summarize what the business does and we've gone around a full circle there and and ended with if it involves pretty much the wheels, best you've probably probably doing it yeah 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 race it store it fix it sell it buy it back <laughs> buy it back sell it again <laughs> rinse and repeat <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Well, James, thank you so much. I feel like 
as ever with these conversations it feels like we can talk as we have done for nearly uh, an hour and 45 minutes we didn't even touch on Kahuna but that's fine oh we did <laughs> no we should well shall we do that very briefly yeah let's quickly do that because there is the other business isn't it that's the uh, other than DK the other one with your name on it is yeah, something fairly interesting I mean I that wasn't like a plug we need to talk about <laughs> <laughs> Just, no no um, that's, you can put you, that gun that you've got across from the desk now <laughs> you can put it down now well I was offering you a biscuit <laughs> you can have that back now thank you um, yeah no so Briefly, Kahuna is just, you know, we talked about social media becoming a big thing and online purchasing has become a big thing. And where we, where we did well in COVID was the fact that we have a lorry and a workshop so mm. we could prepare cars, we could do detailed videos on the ramp, we could take the car to the client, show it to them, bring it back, you know, all within what we're allowed to do within uh, the, the, the lockdown rules. Mm. And as we've seen, people love to buy online now especially in the auction environment, because they get that sort of comfort that there's an underbidder. Mm. You know, oh, he's willing to pay that. Well, I'll pay it. You know, mm. it really does work. And for certain cars, it's definitely an, an outlet avenue that needs to be more accessible. And so from our sort of group of dealers, and you've noticed I've talked about a lot of my dealer friends. Yeah, yeah. You know, we all yeah. get on really well. We all have the same, you know, we have different businesses, but we all have the same issues and the same problems and the things that we need to, to, to fix. Mm -hmm. And um, and it came up by multiple conversations where, you know, as dealerships, we don't have any ability to, like, auction cars under our own banner. We just need that platform, that technology. Yeah. And at the same time, I had lots of clients that were having bad experiences where they were buying cars completely at risk because generally the, the way in which you buy on these online um, platform auctions is that you don't know who you're buying from, you can't really ask questions, it's quite mm. difficult to go see the cars, you definitely can't offer a part exchange, you definitely can't ask finance quotes, whereas these are all things that we provide. So if we're selling a car in an auction as a dealer, someone can call us up, they can ask us every question, come look at the car, all that sort of stuff, and offer us a part exchange, etc., etc. So Carhoon has really been sort of bringing to market an up-to-date marketplace for our sector, and more is the idea. You know, it could be all the cars in the country, um, but just starting with where we are, a marketplace that has classifieds, auctions, uh, a trade underwrite facility that's sort of led by dealers but is for the use of both private guys and the trade. So the idea is, you know, all the dealers have their classified adverts on there, dealers have the ability to list their own auctions, so, you know, DK Engineering can say, this X75 LT that we've taken in part exchange, it's not really our cup of tea, but we know what it's worth, we'd like to get it sold, you know, relatively quickly, Let's put it in an, in an auction with a, 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 a sensible estimate or no reserve if we like. Mm -hmm. And let's get, get on with it. And the way in which our platform's built is that you have full access as a dealer to the back-end technology. So you just upload it yourself and okay. you hit go and within 24 hours it's live. Or if there's someone that wants to get a trade bid on a car, so posh, you know, we buy any car or something like that, mm -hmm. there is that facility too so that the trade right, can make okay. offers on cars. Correct. So it's early days. It launched in May. But that's the idea behind it. Not trying to take on any of the other platforms. I think mm -hmm. the other do platforms do a great job, a fantastic job, in fact, as we've seen, for the private seller that doesn't want to use a dealer. Yeah. But for the private seller that wants to use a dealer or the private buyer that wants to buy from a dealer and either of those that want to buy at auction or enjoy the auction atmosphere, we're creating a platform that puts all of these guys together. And so that's that was founded with my middle brother, Jeremy, a guy called Andrew Hall. We're the founders, and we've got some investors from the trade and some investors from the car industry. And yeah, it's going well. It's hard work, very hard yeah, work. Um, but, uh, you know, 
we're definitely on to something. It's it's mm. something that didn't exist before and I think could be really exciting. Yeah. Just trying to get that momentum going and obviously we're all focusing on our other jobs at the same time as well, so it makes it difficult. But we've got a team of ten, you know, at Carhuna now. Um and so yeah, we'll see what happens in the next year. Very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Go check it out if you're something worth exploring it's just worth a worth a quick look at it because uh, you know our average listener consumer can use the platform to see what's available on the market yeah i mean private sellers can list as well oh great know, private sellers can list or a private seller can go to a dealer and say i want you to list it in an auction but with full transparency so the buyer is is likely to pay more or mm. or be more comfortable with buying because they're buying from a dealer great kahuna go, go take a look go and have a look yeah. thanks guys Thank you. Well, no, thank you. It has been wonderful. We've had, we've taken up an entire, I feel like we've taken up an entire day of your, <laughs> of your, <laughs> your time, James. But thank you so much for the tour um, and for giving us so much of your time and, and your story on the podcast. It's been fantastic. Unpicking bits and pieces that I did know and bits and pieces that I didn't know. And it's, um, yeah, it's been great. It's well, thanks be... for having me. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I'm excited been... to see what happens next and how long until you're in a car at Le Mans? Can I come <laughs> and crossed. document it for some magazines? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Good stuff. Right. Well, uh, that leaves us to say thank you to you, dear listener. Thank you for joining us again. If you've made it this far, you've made it to the end. And therefore, you are our favourite people in the world. Don't forget, you can see everything that we do, including the entire back catalogue of podcast episodes over on our website, driven.site. There you will see the entire breakdown of every single episode we've ever had over 180 now which is wild but you can also see some hand-picked news stories that we upload for you every single day of the week some car review uh, articles and reviews that are written there as well as some photo galleries and of course our back catalogue of videos which you can also see on our youtube channel it's also worth pointing out dk engineering has an amazing youtube channel with some amazing videos so if you have got some time to kill and you don't want to watch my face on youtube go and watch james's instead which is fun we didn't even talk about the user's guides. <laughs> I know, I know. There's a bit of homework. There's Next a bit time. of homework yeah. for, the, for, the li- for the listener. Go and look at the user guide videos of DK Engineering because they are marvellous. They are marvellous. Very, very, very cool. Uh, it is also worth saying that when you say next time, there will be a next time. The reason I say that is because, as our dear listener may already be aware, perhaps not if you're listening to us for the first time or you've missed a few of our recent episodes, we are bringing this podcast to an end towards the end of this year, that is 2023. But fear not, we will be relaunching with a slightly new but very similar name and a very similar format in the new year. I think late winter, early springtime. Is this you uh, that- trying to tell me that I've lost my job? We haven't got there yet, okay. and we've got to go through HR, so there's a, there's a process to it, so I can't say too much. Uh, but the, uh, it's part of the premise of our rebranding and our relaunches, we're going to be revisiting a lot of the key conversations that we've had as the Driven Chat podcast over the past two and a bit years, uh, which have been many and huge, so we're going to go back and revisit a lot. So James, you'll be on that list, without Fantastic. a doubt, probably a year or so, I'd say until we get there always welcome uh, that's very kind of you so yes go and have a look Um, keep an eye on the website if you want to know more about what's happening there with the end of this podcast and the start of the new one the simplest advice is keep an eye on the social feeds and the website and everything will be there for now I will say thank you so much for listening thank you again James thank you Miles thank you thank you dear listener and we shall speak to you in about a week's time ta The Driven Chat Podcast powered by Paramex Digital When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.